The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bizarre mental disorders. A bizarre topic that I had a blast with this week. It's fascinating and at times sobering suck subject will take us all over the mental health map from a lot of strange dietary choices to a number of unique delusions that may or may not be officially recognized by mental health professionals. We're going to go over some pretty staggering statistics on mental illness, and we're going to learn about some of the most common mental illnesses, plus some of the most controversial. We'll dispel some stupid and some not so stupid myths, and we'll take a trip down the old time suck timeline and explore a brief history of mental health. And we're going to get weird, so weird, and have some laughs. I'm going to take you uh, deep into my own wackadoodle noodle and reveal how truly crazy I am. We've all got our shit. So let's get into this deeply cranial, highly cerebral, and super instructive excuse for me to make some dark jokes about some strange and rare diseases of the meat sack mind and this mental health, don't pretend that you're not crazy to edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Work can still wait. It's time for Time Suck. Hail the great Nimrod. Praise the powerful Lucifina. Bow down to good boy Bojangles and be delighted by the sweet, soothing sounds of Triple M. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the mushmouth king, random knowledge slut, and you are listening to Time Suck. The new stand-up tour almost here. Toxic Thoughts Tour uh, kicks off. A week from this weekend in Sacramento, California, January 23rd to the 25th. At least one show already sold out. Thank you for that. Uh, get those ticks if you're going to go. I know uh, seating is getting limited for all the shows. And then I'm off to Vegas, bringing the whole family down to Sin City. Shows at Jimmy Kimmel's Comedy Club, Super Bowl weekend. Then it's one show at the Bell House in Brooklyn, one show at the Improv in Washington, D.C. A full weekend at the Rec Room in Huntington Beach for Valentine's, Valentine's my God, day weekend. And that's just the beginning. Uh, so many more dates at dancummins.tv. Salt Lake City, I know, coming up right around the corner. I uh, got a new shirt. Shirt? 
What am I doing? What am I doing? I felt so confident about speaking today. Got a new shirt in the new store, uh, badmagicmerch.com. You have so many new funky designs in there. It felt necessary to put back a, a classic. Something simple, just the word time suck. White letters on a black shirt or black letters on a gray shirt. Just a simple, soft shirt printed on 201% domestic muskrat labia. And again, if you have questions about anything to do with merch or the online store, please use the green tab on the Shopify site. It goes directly to the customer service team. Best guarantees that your message is received in the correct place. Also, thank you uh, for allowing us to donate $4,000 this month to the Tim Tebow Foundation's Night to Shine. On behalf of the Space Lizards, Hail Nimrod. The uh, Our Lady Queen of Peace Church in Grafton, Ohio, hosted a Night to Shine on February 7th. Thanks to our donation, these Ohio kids are going to have the time of their lives Night to Shine, a special prom night only for kids with special needs, age 14 and up. Uh, 2020, the fifth annual event hosted at over 600 churches where kids get picked up in limos, treated like kings and queens. They get to wear fancy dresses and suits, get their pictures taken, walk in on the red carpet. It's awesome. Find out more, go to uh, timtebowfoundation.org and uh, Night to Shine host information is one of the sub little uh, menus. And thanks as always for the great ratings and reviews online. It's, uh, It's very motivating to uh, make me want to like, uh, you know, do the best job I can here. And now it's topic time. This week's topic, uh, chosen by the Space Lizards, is part of their duty to interpret and follow Nimrod's will. Usually the Space Lizards tasked with voting on, you know, two topics per month, but during the last voting cycle, there was a tie. And uh, it was decided by Nimrod that, uh, you know, the Space space Lizards were going to pick back-to-back-to-back topics. And they're killing it. So let's get mental. What even is mental illness? I don't know, because I am for sure not mentally ill on even a small level. I mean, come on, this, this is me we're talking about. Johnny Normal, Danny Stable, Sir Sucks A Lot. Thousand percent for sure, uh, I am super duper sane. Mind is in tippy top, yip, yip, yah, hell Nimrod shape. Ask anyone who's ever spent a lot of time around me, and I am definitely not super moody or prone to constantly thinking dark and inappropriate thoughts. Uh, definitely not extremely paranoid sometimes. Uh, and who told you I was paranoid, by the way? Somebody fucking tell you? What? Someone's talking, were they? Okay. I can feel it. I always make super solid decisions, barely have a criminal record. Uh, I will for sure be allowed back into Canada sometime soon. And I didn't even set that many dumpster uh, fires, you know, or open field fires near houses as a, as a teen. Uh, I even only dragged one recliner out of my living room in college and burned it in the yard and almost burned down the entire house because I put too much charcoal lighter on it. I know I'm sane because I only fucked one banana peel in the bathroom in high school, you know? It's been probably four years since I cut myself to see if I could handle the pain. Uh, I've only jerked off in the woods to scraps of old porno mags a handful of times. I only let one ex-girlfriend shove some stuff in my butt because it, quote, seemed fair. I only have one large-breasted, life-sized naked mannequin in my office right now and don't even have that many posters on the walls of my office of disgusting serial killers. And I have recorded no more than maybe three hours tops of stand-up material where I openly talk in great detail about wanting to murder strangers. And I haven't fantasized about wanting to be a real-life dirtbag-killing Dexter-type serial killer in a few weeks. And like so many other definitely not mentally ill people, uh, I I have to have music turned on around me at all times. Or I feel uh, tense and angry. And the sound of someone eating potato chips in a quiet room makes me want to start punching holes in the walls and or set something on fucking fire. And like you, other sane person, I am greatly soothed by analyzing statistics. I have checked the stats of NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, uh, you know, players, current and historical, literally every single fucking day for at least a few minutes for over 20 years. And I very much like to do things in threes or life feels chaotic and incomplete. You, you get it. <laughs> you get it. So why am I sharing all this with you? 
to point out that while I've never taken any mental health diagnostics to see if I technically have some kind of mental health quote unquote issue, I also have a life resume full of questionable decisions and definitely feel crazy in some ways. Everyone I've ever seriously dated has joked about me for sure being crazy, like every single person. Gosh dang, oh my heck mother, my zapples are getting on fire. Uh, but seriously, some people for sure think I'm nuts. And I bet at least one person, even if that person is you, thinks that you are nuts. And one way or another, we all have our shit. I mean, what does normal even mean, really? It's subjective. So keep that in mind with today's suck. For what it's worth, if, if you've been diagnosed with some type of mental health condition or mental disorder, I don't think that means you're necessarily, you know, crazier than me or, or lots of other people. And when I joke around about this stuff, I'm not making fun of you personally, or I don't think you are any more fucked up overall than I am. All that being said, today we'll be talking about some uh, more extreme mental health disorders. Just like someone who's extremely physically handicapped has to work a lot harder in some ways than the rest of us to accomplish some of the same things, so do people with severe mental disorders. And I feel worse in some ways for people with extreme mental disorders than I do for people with extreme physical handicaps because you, you can see someone not having legs. You don't expect someone without legs to just walk around on their own. You don't get annoyed when they're taking too long crossing the street. Just come on, buddy. Come on, move it along. I mean, you don't feel that way unless you have an extreme mental disorder. The real problem with mental illness, mental disorders, is that you can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't always visually see that someone's brain is wired a bit differently than yours. And because of that, I feel like it can be, you know, a little easier to get mad or frustrated or disgusted with people with mental disorders and, and adopt this attitude of like, come on, knock it off. Come on, don't do that. Act right, which is terribly unfair because they can't make their mind, for example, you know, stop feeding them delusions any more than someone with no legs can pop up out of a wheelchair and just fucking win a hundred yard dash. So while we're going to learn some stuff today, uh, we're going to have some laughs. I hope we also gain some understanding, which leads to some extra tolerance and compassion. So cool? All right, cool. Now back to my initial question. What is mental illness? Here, here's a fairly broad stroke definition. Mental illness is a health condition involving changes in emotion, thinking, behavior, or a combination of these. Mental disorders are associated with uh, various degrees of distress and or problems functioning in social work or family activities. Mental health professionals want to stress that mental illness is nothing to be ashamed of. It's a medical problem just like heart disease or diabetes. Also, if you want to take a spiritual or religious view, having a mental illness, all that it means is that God hates you. Not a big deal. God hates a lot of people. He, does, he doesn't like you, so he, so he put less knives in your drawer than, than most other drawers. He put less cards in your deck. <laughs> of course, that is not a common spiritual or religious view. I, I don't think so. I hope not. I JK. Uh, ment mental illness is very common. Knowing that is important. Knowing that uh, it's common, helps destigmatize it. Having a mental illness is not a sign of weakness. It's something that afflicts all kinds of people from all kinds of different walks of life. Uh, here's some data to prove what I'm talking about. Data. It's one of those words. I always want to call it data. I want to do both. Here's some, here's some data data. Here's some data data. Uh, several studies have shown that about one in five U.S. adults, 19% experience some form of mental illness. On top of that, one in 24 people, 4.1%, has a serious mental illness defined as a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder, excluding developmental and substance abuse disorders, resulting in serious functional impairment, which substantially interferes with or limits one or more major life activities. Examples of serious mental illness include major depressive disorders, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. Also, one in 12 folks, 8.5%, has a diagnosable substance use disorder, which is a type of mental illness. Some brains aren't able to handle alcohol, for example, the same way that other brains can. 
And then there are all the people who may not consistently suffer from mental illness, but do experience some type of mental health issue or episode from time to time. While accurate numbers are obviously very hard to come by globally, the worldwide estimate, according to the United Nations, is that one in four people will experience a mental health issue in any given year. That's obviously a lot of people. Other studies show that almost half of U.S. adults, 46.4%, will experience some type of mental illness during their lifetime. Just like you can be physically healthy most of the time, and then you can get cancer or shingles or have a heart attack or have your back go out, et cetera, et cetera. You can also have your brain go out in some way from time to time. A lot of people live with some form of mental illness. Current studies indicate that somewhere between 1% and 2.8% of adults in the U.S. live with some form of bipolar disorder. And while percentage-wise, that might not sound like a lot, that's anywhere from 3.72 million to 22, uh, uh, sorry, to 22 million people. They can't be right. Um, it's anywhere from 3.72 million. I did some funky math there. That is not right. I can, I can recorrect it right now to to almost 10 million people. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where the hell 22. That's my own mental disorder. Around 9% of people in the U S live with major depression, almost 30 million people. About 11% of children have a mood disorder and about 10% have a behavior or conduct disorder. About 26, uh, 26% of adults experience homelessness and shelters live with serious mental illness. Around 24% of state prisoners have a recent history of a mental health condition. And one more stat before going forward, according to a number of studies, the LGBTIQ community, two to four times more likely to experience mental health issues than the non-LGBTIQ population. Uh, maybe. There's, there's a lot of questionable diagnostics that have been done surrounding the LBG or LGBTIQ community. Mental health stats for this particular popula uh, population, a little bit controversial, and we'll talk more about that later. Basically, to sum up all the data, you're, you're more likely to experience mental illness than you are to develop heart disease, diabetes, or any kind of cancer. So if you think you're a little bit knuck and futz, yeah, you're probably right. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, now let's talk about treatment. Sadly, only around 40% of people thought to have a mental disorder receive professional health care or other treatment, which is a huge bummer because in most cases, mental illness is often very treatable. So you got to do what you got to do to put those clowns back in the car. The vast majority of individuals' mental uh, illness continue to function in their daily lives. Studies show that 70 to 90% of people who seek proper treatment for mental health disorders see a significant reduction in symptoms. So who is most likely to suffer from mental illness? Important to say again that mental illness does not discriminate. It can affect anyone regardless of your age, gender, geography, income, social status, uh, race, ethnicity, religion, spirituality, sexual orientation, background, or any other aspect of cultural identity. However, there is one demographic subgroup mental illness does seem to affect uh, a little more than other groups, and it's guys with tiny, tiny weaknesses. The already vulnerable micropene population, studies have shown that grown men with little tiny baby dicks are three to four inches sadder than other guys. <laughs> Dad joke, coming in hot. Sorry. Just three to four inches sadder than other guys made me laugh because I'm an idiot. JK, there are surgeries out there if you're truly worried about penis size, by the way. Therapists who can help you learn to accept it. Uh, actually, not kidding about that. What is big deal? So it's tiny. Maybe it's limp as well. Go get help. Do not go full chikatilo and try and stab and hate come way back to happiness. Do not try and wrestle away anger or major depression. Thanks, chikatilo. Uh, but there is a population more susceptible to mental illness than any other. Uh, there is one. Polish people. According to psychiatrists, all Polish people are extremely mentally ill. Double JK, uh, Polish people are not more likely to be mentally ill because they're not people. They're stupid, angry monsters. Triple JK, 
Uh, just a dumb joke to rile up my wife. I'm done, I'm done for a bit now. No, the younger you are, the younger you are, uh, the more likely you are to experience an onset of mental illness. That one is true. While mental illness can occur to anybody at any age, uh, three-fourths of mental illnesses do begin by the age of 24. So rest easy if you're 25. Uh, mental illness takes many forms. Some are mild, only interfere in limited ways with daily life, such as uh, certain phobias, aka abnormal fears. If you truly have, you know, uh, coulrophobia, uh, for example, you'll, you know, you'll be fine as long as you don't go to the circus, watch the movie It, or have someone send a birthday clown to your office. If that happens, your intense fear of clowns is going to uh, cause you to maybe quite literally lose your shit. That's, yeah, coulrophobia. I think it's how you say that. Other mental health conditions are not so situational and can be severe enough that the afflicted may need to be placed in a psychiatric hospital. There are so many different kinds of mental illnesses, just like, like there are so many different kinds of physical illnesses. There are 265 different mental disorders listed in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, not counting various illness modifiers, like various little subsets. The DSM-5 is the uh, handbook used by health professionals to help identify and diagnose these illnesses. The fifth edition came out in 2013. And why are there five editions of this, of this diagnostic manual? Because just like how the understanding of physical ailments has changed over time, so has the understanding of mental health. Before we go into the more rare or bizarre disorders, let's first look at the main groupings of the more common mental disorders, and then at some examples of the most common forms of mental illness, Finally, look at, a, at some of the more controversial disorders. Just get a, a better understanding of mental health in general. There are seven major groups of disorders. Uh, there are mood disorders, such as depression or bipolar disorder. There are anxiety disorders, uh, various forms of anxiety. A third group is called personality disorders, antisocial, paranoid, borderline personality disorders. A fourth group is psychotic disorders, like schizophrenia. Uh, eating disorders is a fifth group, such as bulimia, anorexia. Uh, there's also trauma-related disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder. Another group is substance abuse disorders, recently broadened to include gambling disorders. And there are even music disorders for people who feel compelled to play, you know, really, really terrible music like this. <laughs> hey, kids! Mental illness is very real! My doctor says I have a special form of OCD. Obsession with cotton candy's dancing. <laughs> Come on. The acronym almost works even if the joke doesn't. <laughs> a subset of this music disorder is known as ABS or air banjo syndrome, characterized by pretending to play a made-up instrument known as the air banjo, often over the top of super shitty music. And of course, uh, uh, the real disorders uh, stop. Uh, the group stop at, uh, you know, before the made-up music disorder and, uh, at substance abuse disorders. <laughs> okay. Now that we all know what the main groups are, uh, let's look at the most common mental illnesses. I probably have some mental illness re re <laughs> that has something to do with wanting to do the jokes I do. Uh, according to data collected by numerous mental health organizations, here are the eight most common mental conditions. Depression. Upwards of 350 million people worldwide deal with depression. Also, women are nearly twice as likely to men as uh, to be diagnosed with depression. Now, does that mean that women get depressed more often than men? Not necessarily. Might just mean that men are much more reluctant to seek treatment. There's also uh, all sorts of different levels to how severe your depression might be. There's the lowest level known as the shut the fuck up, stupid crybaby level. 
Uh, that one doesn't show up in the DSM-5 or anywhere else because I just made it up, but it, does, it feels kind of real to me sometimes. Uh, one not made up severe type of depression is persistent depressive disorder. A chronic type of depression, also known as dysthymia, dysthymic depression can interfere with daily life extensively because it's a combination of depression uh, being intense that can last for a long time. Yeah, a combination of the, yeah, the intensity and just long lasting. Uh, people with dysthymia experience symptoms for at least two years and about 1.5% of American adults experience dysthymia each year. Sounds like a motherfucker. Uh, but what even is depression really? I think most of us have a vague sense. It's a feeling of sadness. Let's define it a bit more properly since we're here. Uh, depression is often characterized by loss of interest or pleasure, general sadness, feelings of guilt or low self-worth, difficulty falling asleep, eating pattern changes, exhaustion, and a lack of concentration. And depression isn't simply the result of imbalanced brain chemicals. It's not just a lack of enough serotonin, as it's often depicted, uh, so you can't always just take some pills to make it go away. Rather, several forces such as genetics, life events, medical problems, and medications can combine to bring on this illness. In its most severe form, depression can lead to suicidal thoughts and worse suicidal actions. The most effective treatments for depression is cognitive behavior therapy or psychotherapy, and in some cases, also taking antidepressant medication. The least effective treatment for depression that I am aware of is getting repeatedly kicked in the dick and or pussy while the person kicking you yells, sad kicks for the sad baby. Sad kicks for the sad baby. I'm guessing. Now, did I say that I'm not a licensed therapist earlier? I feel like I should point out that I am not a licensed therapist. Another form of depression is experiencing a MDD or major depressive disorder characterized by feelings of extreme sadness or hopelessness that last for at least two weeks. This condition is also uh, known as clinical depression. People with MDD may become so upset about their lives that they think about or try to commit suicide. About 7% of Americans experience at least one major depressive episode each year. Now let's talk about another very common form of mental illness, anxiety. It is not uncommon for a person experiencing depression to also have anxiety and vice versa. Uh, anxiety is tricky because anxiety can be a normal and often healthy emotion. However, when a person regularly feels disproportionate levels of anxiety, it can cross over into becoming a medical disorder. Like if you're feeling really anxious because your spouse is going through your phone and you've been texting with someone you're having an affair with, yeah, you're supposed to feel anxious in that situation. Not feeling anxiety in that situation could speak to mental illness. You're like, you might truly be a sociopath. Feeling super anxious to go outside because you're worried you might run into someone you don't know and they might say hi to you and you're afraid you won't say hi back the right way so you decide just to stay locked in your house. Well, now we're probably talking about mental illness. Anxiety is a disorder that affects 40 million adults in the U.S. or 18.1% of the population every year to varying degrees. It develops from a variety of factors including gen genetics, uh, brain chemistry, and life events. While it is a highly treatable illness, only 36.9% of those who live with anxiety actually seek out and access treatments. And this may sound really stupid, but I do wonder if a lot of people who suffer from anxiety don't get treatment because the thought of getting treatment, ironically, makes them feel very anxious. Doesn't that suck? Anxiety disorders form a category of mental health diagno or diagnoses that lead to excessive nervousness, fear, apprehension, and worry. Common anxiety disorder is GAD, G-A-D, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. Uh, GAD goes beyond regular and everyday anxiety, like being nervous before a presentation. Causes the person to become extremely worried about many things, even when there's little to no reason to worry about them, like the example I made a moment ago. Those with GAD may feel very nervous about just getting through the day. They may think things just aren't going to work out in their favor. Sometimes worrying can keep people with GAD from accomplishing basic tasks and chores, like going outside to get the mail because you're worried you might run into someone you don't know. 
right? That whole thing I just laid out in GAD affects about 3% of Americans every year. Another common anxiety disorder is social anxiety disorder, also very prevalent. Social anxiety disorder, sometimes called a uh, social phobia, is defined by an extreme fear of social situations. People with this disorder may become very nervous about being being judged by other people. Uh, People who wear mesh tank tops and capri cargo pants and white tube socks with black Crocs to nice restaurants are much more likely to suffer from this disorder since people are definitely judging the shit out of them. But seriously, this disorder can make it hard to meet new people, attend social gatherings, and approximately 15 million adults in the U.S. alone experience social anxiety each year. Another common mental illness is bipolar affective disorder. Someone who has bipolar affective disorder will experience both manic and depressive episodes, sometimes bookended, sometimes featuring moments of normal or stabilized mood. And this illness impacts approximately 60 million people to varying degrees worldwide. I had no idea it was that common. A chronic form of mental illness that affects about 2.6% of Americans each year. Uh, Mariah Carey, Mel Gibson, Demi Lovato, Russell Brand, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, Ernest Hemingway, Turner Broadcasting and CNN founder Ted Turner, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Frank Sinatra, just a few of the many famous people who suffer or have suffered from bipolar affective disorder. Manic episodes can feature elevated or irritable mood, hyperactivity, inflated self-esteem, and a lack of desire to sleep. Depressive episodes are often characterized by feelings of extreme sadness, hopelessness, little energy, and trouble sleeping. And while the cause of bipolar is not entirely known, a mixture of genetic, neurochemical, and environmental factors to play a role in the progression in the progression of the illness, which can be treated usually very successfully through medication and counseling. It's very important to seek treatment if you have bipolar disorder due to a dramatically increased risk of suicide. In a study from Denmark spanning four decades, 8% of the male bipolar patients and 5% of the female patients eventually died via suicide compared to 0.7% of the men and only 0.3% of women in the general population. That's a huge difference. Another common and brutal form of mental illness is schizophrenia. Schizophrenia uh, impacts roughly 23 million people worldwide, characterized by distortions in thinking, perceptions, emotions, sense of self, and behavior. Those who have these illnesses can experience hallucinations and delusions starting in late adolescence or early adulthood, making it difficult for people to to work, study, or interact socially. Yeah, I, I bet. Hard to focus on that final If you uh, hear a voice telling you that Hitler is still alive and hiding in your sociology professor, and the only way to expose him is to fill your backpack with a hundred beanie babies that open their eyes and become alive the second you close the zipper. Not having control of your own thoughts, hearing a voice inside your head that truly feels foreign. How terrifying. Uh, Dementia is another all too common and frightening mental illness. Dementia is generally chronic or progressive in nature and entails a deterioration of cognitive function beyond normal aging, impacting about 50 million people across the globe. From memory, orientation, and thinking to comprehension, calculation, and language, the decline in cognitive function is generally met with degrading emotional and social control. Emotional and social control. Uh, Dementia is caused by a variety of diseases that impact the brain. There's currently no cure available, but there are treatments designed to ease the suffering and confusion of the sufferer. Uh, Another well-known disorder that affects millions of Americans and millions more across the globe is OCD, which is not obsession with cotton candies dancing. No, it's obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, OCD causes constant and repetitive thoughts or obsessions. These thoughts happen uh, with unnecessary and unreasonable desires to carry out certain behaviors or compulsions. 
Uh, many people with OCD realize that their thoughts and actions are unreasonable, yet they cannot stop them. More than 2% of Americans are diagnosed with OCD at some point in their lifetime. And, and I looked over some OCD case studies online, and I know finding some of them hilarious may mean that I am mentally ill, but I, I did laugh at this one. Ms. X is a 21-year-old undergraduate studying accountancy who has been distressed for the past few weeks by some disturbing thoughts. She has thoughts of slapping her friends for no reason when they study together and also has mental images of them indulging in sexual acts. She finds these thoughts and images to be repulsive and disturbing, but they continue to be intrusive and difficult to resist. She is even more distressed when she goes for her regular prayers. She will have sudden impulses to blaspheme the name of God. She is afraid that she might lose control one day and shout blasphemies in public. I just keep picturing this poor young lady uh, talking to her therapist. And um, what recurring thoughts do you have when you're studying with your friends, Sarah? Nothing, nothing, nothing. It's, it's nothing. It's, it's okay, Sarah. You're in a safe space. What, what do you think about when you're studying with Rachel and Janelle? I want to slap those stupid bitches. I want to slap them in their faces. Good, Sarah. Good. This is good to talk about. And what else do you want to do to, to Rachel and Janelle? I want to eat their pussies. I want to slap those goddamn bitches and eat their pussies. Forgive me, father. <laughs> How mentally ill would it make me if this anonymous woman's OCD thoughts uh, turned me on? Asking for a friend. Another very common DSM-5 defined mental illness is insomnia. Assigned to individuals who experience uh, recurrent poor sleep quality or quantity that causes distress or impairment in important areas of functioning. Some of the criteria for an actual insomnia diagnosis is difficulty sleeping occurs at least three times a week and is present for at least three months. And the problem cannot be attributed to substance use or medication. Okay, one more. PTSD. According to the American Psychological Association, 70% of adults in the U.S. report experiencing some type of traumatic event at least once in their lives. And 20% of those people go on to develop full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD affects 7.7 .7 million adults or 3.5% of the U.S. population. And that, and that one's, uh, that little is from a few years back. So now it would be, you know, closer to like more like 9 million. And it affects a much higher percentage of veterans. Studies have shown that roughly 15% of uh, Vietnam veterans and up to 20% of Operation Enduring Freedom veterans suffer from PTSD. So those were some of the most common mental illnesses. Now, before we look into some truly bizarre mental health disorders, let's look at some controversial mental health issues. Because mental health can be a touchy subject, to say the least. Uh, the stigmas that come with being diagnosed as having a mental disorder can be almost as harmful to a person's well-being as the actual illness itself. Stigma often keeps people from seeking treatment. Uh, the stigma can often lead to drugs, alcohol, eventually yelling at no one in particular in front of the Starbucks at the intersection of Santa Monica and Bundy in West LA and pooping on the sidewalk. I went to that Starbucks for years when I lived two blocks from that Starbucks and I saw what severe untreated mental illness looks like every time I would go there. Like every time. Uh, we have friends from that area trying to move right now out of Southern California, mainly because of the staggering number of mentally ill and drug addicted homeless people uh, in the area. It can definitely be a little unnerving, legitimately scary when a large mentally ill man is storming up the sidewalk towards you speaking absolute gibberish. On two different occasion, uh, occasions within four blocks of my apartment, I saw a dude standing on the sidewalk, uh, pants down, uh, one guy, the other guy pants completely off, facing the street, uh, just beaten off broad daylight, guessing they were severely mentally ill, guessing they were not getting treatment. And I'm not a licensed therapist, but strongly uh, uh, assume that they probably should get some treatment. Uh, part of the stigma that comes with mental illness is that some people don't really believe in mental illness or in certain mental illnesses. They think it's some sort of choice. 
Uh, the reason some people stay away from treatment is a lack of belief in treatment effectiveness as well. As well. And even though study after study shows that treatment is incredibly helpful, uh, both of these beliefs are somewhat understandable historically. Until very recently, many psychological disorders were nonsense and treatment often had more in common with medieval torture than actual medically beneficial drugs and therapy. Historically, the definition of mental disorders has been heavily influenced by societal and cultural norms, which has added some to, uh, to think that, you know, mental illness is just kind of nonsense, which is not. One recent controversial mental disorder is GID, gender identity disorder, uh, recently redefined as gender dysphoria. Under the old DSM-4, people who felt that their physical gender did not match their true gender were diagnosed with gender identity disorder. And then the DSM-5 slightly revised the criteria for the disorder and changed the name to the less stigmatizing gender dysphoria, also changed the diagnostic emphasis. And the old DSM-4 GID focused specifically on the identity issue, namely the incongruity between someone's birth gender and the gender with which he or she identifies. Basically, if someone's born with male parts, and thinks that they, uh, you know, should have female parts or vice versa. You know, they were they used to always be classified as being mentally ill. With the new DSM-5 gender dysphoria, the manual emphasizes the importance of distress about the incongruity for one to be diagnosed with an actual mental illness. Under the new guidelines, feeling that you are a man, for example, when you are born a, a you know a woman, no longer necessarily a sign of mental illness if you are not distressed. If you're fine feeling that you are one gender, but happen to be in the body of another gender uh, that is, you know, under the new guidelines, not mentally ill. Dr. Uh, Robin Rosenberg, a clinical psychologist and a co-author of the psychology textbook, Abnormal Psychology, says the disagreement between birth gender and identity may not necessarily be pathological if it does not cause the individual distress. And this is where the controversy kicks in. Some people do not like this condition being, for lack of a better term, normalized. We talked a lot about the transgender debate in Suck 44. If you want to dive deeper on this by specific identification, a lot of the controversy over gender dysmorphia comes over treatment. Uh, what do we do with this new emphasis? Should kids who feel gender mismatched be allowed to define themselves or should they be encouraged to identify with their physical biological gender? Is encouraging an eight-year-old boy who feels that they are, are actually a girl, is that the right thing to do? Or should the kid be encouraged to identify with their biological gender until they're older? Is the kid going through a phase or they, do they truly have gender dysmorphia? The DSM doesn't really cover treatment, which, you know, fuels this debate. I do see the argument on both sides. Those on one side of the argument see their role as helping kids get comfortable in their own skin. Those on the other side say they're forcing a kid or say that forcing a kid to live as an unwanted gender will, you know, cause depression and anxiety. And I see that as well. Uh, this issue will remain controversial for quite some time because, you know, not that many longitudinal studies have, able, uh, have been done hasn't been possible to do them, to see how the mental health of someone who's, who gets, say, a, a gender reassignment surgery at 20, to see how they feel at 40, 50, 60. You know, will the overwhelming number of those who have the surgery feel good about that choice? Has their mental health dramatically improved? Or will they regret it? Will they feel that they, you know, um, you know would have been happier if they hadn't have had the surgery? You know, did the surgery add stress to their life? Only time will tell. Early, early research does indicate, though, that the overwhelming majority of those who undergo the surgery are glad they did it and feel better and mentally healthier. Uh, most in the psychological community seem to think that in time, gender dysmorphia won't be any more culturally taboo than homosexuality used to be. It wasn't that long ago that homosexuality itself was classified as a mental illness. And perhaps the most famous psychiatric controversy of all in the States, the APA did away with homosexuality as a mental disorder in 1973 after a lot of protests from, you know, the gay and lesbian community. 
The change was not easy, but the weight of the scientific evidence suggested that same-sex attraction was a normal variant of sexuality among well-adjusted people. That wasn't believed that long ago. Still, the APA included a diagnosis in the 1980 DSM-3 called ego-dystonic homosexuality. This category was like a compromise with psychiatrists who insisted that some gays and lesbians came to them looking for treatment regarding their sexual preference. And then Robert Spitzer, a member of the American Psychological Association's Diagnostic Tax Task Force, said in a 1973 position statement, the revision in the nomenclature provides the possibility of finding a homosexual to be free of psychiatric disorder and provides a means to diagnose a mental disorder whose central feature is conflict about homosexual behavior. But the ego-dystonic homosexuality diagnosis was short-lived. The category didn't make sense to many psychiatrists who argued that anxiety over sexual orientation could fit into already existing categories. So in 86, ego-dystonic homosexuality disappeared from the DSM lexicon. Okay, despite that, in 2020, many people who are not in the field of psychology or psychiatry still do view homosexuality as a mental disorder. Science does not seem to back up that view. It tends to be more based in religion, but the view does exist and is actually quite common. Another controversial disorder uh, classification is sex addiction. According to the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health, sex addiction is marked by a lack of control over one's sexual behavior. Hail Lucifina! I mean, dang, gosh dang, sucks. Uh, no, true sex addicts pursue sex despite negative consequences. They can't set boundaries. They obsess over sex even when they don't want to think about it. Self-described addicts also report that they don't get any pleasure from their sexual behavior, only shame. Despite sex addict being a common term, it's actually not a DSM-5 disorder. It's not, I mean, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of, uh, of disorders that are out there that aren't in the manual yet. And it may never be, but the term is out there. The APA did recently create a new sexual disorder classification called hypersexual disorder, which is in the DSM-5. Uh, it's defined differently for men and women as either a one-way ticket to Bonertown or a state of constant flooding in and around Pussy Creek. And of course, that's not true, <laughs> but it makes me laugh because I'm an idiot. Uh, no, hypersexual disorder is defined as an excessive preoccupation with sexual fantasies, urges, or behaviors that are difficult to control, cause you distress, or negatively affect your health, job, relationship, or other parts of your life. One of the most controversial disorders is Asperger's disorder. In 1994, Asperger's disorder, which is marked by normal intelligence and language abilities, but poor social skills, made the DSM-4. However, it was changed in 2013 when the DSM-5 was released. They replaced autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, and other pervasive developmental disorders with the umbrella diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. The reason? Research on Asperger's and high-functioning autism had failed to find a difference between the two diagnoses. So overlap between the two disorders was rampant. Up to 44% of kids diagnosed with Asperger's or other autism spectrum labels actually met the criteria for high-functioning autism, according to a 2008 sur survey. But some Asperger's uh, advocates disapprove of the name change. The high-functioning autism label doesn't always fit people with Asperger's, says uh, Dania uh, Jekyll, the executive director of Asperger's Association of New England, which opposes the change. Man, semantics. All these labels always changing. Can get a little hard to keep up with. Uh, reminds me that while we meet sacks, we're so much the same in so many ways, having for the, you know, the most part, the same desires to be loved, appreciated have some economic stability, put food on the table, roof over the head, the ability to retire someday. Uh, we all want our lives to mean something, but we also are also very different, right? I, th I think this is why romantic relationships can be so hard to manage long-term. 
We all have these super complicated brains that process objective reality so differently. We each add our own spin to the world around us. We each place different emotional emphasis on situations, reading things into situations that aren't there because of how those situations remind us maybe of past experiences. Some of us can see mostly the good in the situation. Some of us see mostly bad. Some of us see shit that isn't there at all. We each have an idea of how things are supposed to work, but that idea is really exactly the same as the person standing next to us. It's fucking amazing that we can all come together and compromise and actually get anything done. We keep shit interesting. Humans, uh, we're a lot of things. One of those things is not boring. We're fascinating creatures. And all these labels just speak to that, just the really diversity. Another controversial diagnosis is childhood bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder characterized, you know, by mood swings between depression and excitability uh, skyrocketed, skyrocketed recently as a childhood disorder. Between 1994 and 2003, the number of doctor visits associated with childhood bipolar disorders went up 40-fold, according to a 2007 study in the journal Archives of General Psychiatry. The problem, according to the APA, is that at least some of that increase is due to changes in the way psychiatrists diagnose bipolar in kids, not an actual increase in cases. To correct the issue, the APA is considering changes to the current bipolar criteria, as well as the addition of a new disorder, temper dysregulation with dysphoria. That disorder would apply to kids with persistent irritable moods and frequent temper tantrums, but it's already drawn skepticism from some who believe it assigns an unnecessary label to normal kid behavior. I mean, I mean, all these labels can be so, so good, but it does get, yeah, just a little bit like, Jesus, there's just a label for every single type of deviation. I mean, I, mean, I do think at the end of the day, it's good, but it does feel like the more labels we come up with, the smaller the slice of quote unquote normal on the pie chart of mental health kids. I mean, maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe if we all had a diagnosis, mental illness would really be destigmatized because we would all be, you know, know that we're fucking crazy in some way or another. Maybe it's a very good thing. Another controversial diagnosis is adult ADHD. Uh, attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, a well-known childhood diagnosis. Kids with ADHD have trouble sitting still, paying attention, controlling their impulses, uh, guilty. Uh, if that's the diagnosis, I'm going to say I for sure had it. I, I was just never taken in for any kind of uh, you know treatment or to be looked at. I was just called a squirm and Herman. I was told I had ants in my pants and my desk was moved out into the classroom, uh, out of the classroom and into the hallway. Recently, psychiatrists have also begun to diagnose ADHD in adults. And just like ADHD in children, uh, how it was criticized for being overdiagnosed, so is adult ADHD now. A common accusation is that psychiatrists are conspiring with pharmaceutical companies to sell more ADH drugs. And I don't believe that. I don't think psychiatrists after psychiatrists are just throwing away their ethics and jumping into the coffers of big pharma, you know, uh, over and over. And, and also, you know, the treatment, the drug treatment does show that it helps people. So... You know, it'd be one thing if everybody was prescribing medications and it just wasn't doing anything, then it would seem like a conspiracy, like they're just doing it for money. But if people's, you know, mood stabilizes and they're actually able to function much better socially, you know, uh, they're much happier, then yeah, that's a good thing. Another disorder that's been controversial, uh, maybe the most fascinating disorder of all, as, as far as a commonly known one, dissociative identity disorder, previously known as multiple personality disorder. This was made famous by the 1973 book Sybil in America which was made into a movie the same name in 1976. And the film and the book told the story of Shirley Mason. Her pseudonym was Sybil, who was diagnosed as having 16 separate personalities as a result of horrific physical and sexual abuse doled out at the hands of her monster of a mother, Mommy Dearest. The book and the movie were big hits, but the diagnosis was not. In 1995, psychiatrist Herbert Spiegel, who consulted on Shirley Mason's case, told the New York Review of Books that he believed Mason's personalities were created by her therapist. 
who perhaps unwittingly suggested that Mason's different emotional states were distinct personalities with different names. Likewise, critics of the dissociative identity diagnosis argued that the disorder is artificial, perpetuated by well-meaning therapists who convince troubled and suggestible patients that their problems are due to multiple personalities. Reminds me of uh, hypnosis therapy where people are, you know, suddenly remember that they were abducted by aliens and that they uh, were molested by members of a satanic cult. Uh, nonetheless, dissociative identity disorder has weathered this criticism as, and it still is in the DSM. It's in the DSM-5, which does mean that the psychological and psychiatric community at large does allow for this extreme condition to be a real thing. Uh, here's the diagnostic criteria for this. The disorder is marked by a disruption of identity characterized by two or more distinct personality states or an experience of possession. The clinician may observe or the patient may report that these personality states demonstrate marked discontinuity in sense of self and or agency accompanied by changes in effect, behavior, consciousness, memory, perception, cognition, and or sensory motor functioning. In addition, the person experiences disassociative amnesia, a disruption in autobiographical memory that includes gaps or difficulties in recall of everyday events, important personal information, and or traumatic events. Man, how weird. Uh, if like each personality is a separate consciousness. Like if that's true, would integrating them into one consciousness uh, be kind of like murder, right? Would you have to kill a few of the personalities to get down to one? And there's been some movies kind of based around that premise that I've uh, enjoyed. I dated someone who swore that her ex had this. She said he would space off and then suddenly when he would snap back, he would be somebody else with different mannerisms, preferences, memories, speaking cadence. Ugh, dude. I don't care how kind and understanding a person is. It would be really hard to be in a relationship with someone uh, who had this because essentially it's like you'd be dating multiple people. And again, because I'm an idiot, I immediately picture my wife, Lindsay, having this and my brain, of course, makes one of her separate personalities super freaky nympho. <laughs> and I picture her snapping back to her main personality and asking me why she has still clamps on her nipples and why her butt hurts. Come on, you get it. <laughs> nice. And I would just say something like, ha, oh, weird. That's weird. I don't know anything about that. And then uh, she has a hard time understanding what I'm saying because I'm, I'm wearing a get mask. Hey, anywho, moving on. Hey, Lucifina. Another disorder that fits into this list of controversial brain stuff is known as the uh, narcissistic personality disorder, NPD. Narcissists. I feel like there's so many of them out there. But is that true? Uh, someone with an inflated ego a need for constant praise and a lack of empathy for others might sound like a shoe-in for psychotherapy, but the introduction of narcissistic personality disorder into the DSM in 1980 was not without people yelling in disagreement over it. The biggest problem was that no one could agree on who had the disorder. Up to half of the people diagnosed with the narcissistic personality initially were lawyers, which I love. <laughs> and they met the criteria for other personality disorders like histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, uh, according to a 2001 review in the Journal of Mental Health Counseling. Basically, the diagnosis uh, seemed, you know, almost arbitrary and too common. Does that make it wrong or is the world just full of narcissists? Is it normal to be a narcissist? Are you a narcissist? Do you know one? Here's the criteria for a diagnosis or diagnosis from the DSM-5. Uh, NPD is defined as compromising a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, a constant need for admiration, a lack of empathy, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated in the presence of at least five of the following nine criteria. So find out if you're a narcissist. Do you have five of these next nine things? Number one, has a grandiose sense of self-importance. For example, exaggerates achievements and talents, expects to be recognized as superior 
without uh, commensurate achievements. Uh, C-O-M-M-E-N-S-U-R-A-T-E. That word always escapes me when I need it. How to say it? Commensurate? I think so. Uh, I don't think I have this one. Maybe, maybe I do. I Sometimes uh, I do think what I do is important, but sometimes I think I'm a stupid jackass. It doesn't seem consistent. Uh, number two is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Now, I don't, I don't sit around fantasizing about unlimited power. Uh, I would rather have somebody smarter than me in charge. That, that would make me feel better. If, there, if like the thought of me being in charge of everything would make me super fucking anxious. I'm like, oh, I'm going to fuck it up. Uh, number three, believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions. I think, I kinda, I think I'm kind of special, mostly because you guys say that, but, uh, but I also think a lot of other people are special. Uh, and I have no interest in associating only with high status people. That, that, that sounds painful. Powerful people usually come across as very arrogant to me and not as an enjoyable personality type to be around. Uh, number four, requires excessive admiration. No, I'm lucky that I get that. It mostly just makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, five, has a sense of entitlement. That is unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. I mean, maybe. I do kind of wish I was above the law, right? That would be fun. Who would want to be above the law? Mostly, I just want to be able to drive really, really fast and not get pulled over. And maybe occasionally, occasionally, don't get crazy, do some hard drugs in public and not have to worry about getting arrested. You know, you get it. Number six is interpersonally exploitative. That is, takes advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends. Now, come on, I married a Polish woman. I can't exploit, I can't exploit her. She can't even read or write. So that one's not true. Uh, JK, <laughs> she's very smart. She's very smart. Uh, seven, lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. No, uh, seeing sad people makes me feel like a sad boy. Number eight, often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her. Nah, uh, you do you, let me do me. I don't, I, don't, I don't think about envy, really. I mean, yeah, sometimes I see some comment like, God, that'd be cool. But I don't ever like want their life. Uh, number nine shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. Maybe get a little haughty. Oh, haughty. Oh, haughty pants. Haughty Cummins. That's what they call me. Oh, hot cum. Okay, so that felt good to go through. I, I don't think I'm a narcissist despite having a very self-centered career. Uh, I do think I have known some narcissists for sure though. I do think I may be related to some. Okay, one more controversial diagnosis, this time from the days of yore. Then we're off to bizarro land. This one is just entertaining to me. Hysteria. This is fucking crazy. In the Victorian era, hysteria was a catch-all diagnosis for women in distress. Uh, the symptoms were very vague because it's nonsense. Uh, discontentment, weakness, outbursts of emotion, nerves, sh shopping too much, erect nipples, not making that one up. Super sexist, long debunked diagnosis. A common, basically it's like, ah, oh, women, oh, she's a typical woman. It's like that kind of fucking thought process. Um, <laughs> this is so crazy. A common treatment for hysteria called hysterical uh, paroxysm was insane. Hysterical per, uh, perox paroxysm, paroxysm, oh shit. I don't know, I, I usually do all my pronunciation checks. This is P-A-R-O-X-Y-S-M, paro paroxysm. I think it's paroxysm, I think it was right the first time. Was a doctor massaging his patient's vagina and clitoris either manually or with a vibrator? I'm not making this up. This treatment was uh, born way before the Victorian area. It goes back to the time of the Romans, at least. A second century Roman physician, Galen, wrote, quote, following the remedies and arising from the touch of the genital organs required by the treatment, <laughs> there followed twitchings accompanied at the same time by pain and pleasure. 
after which she emitted turbid and abundant sperm. <laughs> From that time on, she was free of all the evil she felt. Yeah, she came and she felt better. What the fuck? Nurse, this woman is hysterical. Please get a hold of Dr. Fingerblaster. <laughs> Women would go visit a doctor or therapist. And this dude, it was always a dude, would just would finger them. Just fucking finger blast them. Or stick a vibrator uh, in their vagina or you know, rub it on around their clit until they came. And apparently, I guess, would keep his pants on the entire time and did not see this as a sexual encounter, but rather just as medical treatment. Oh my God. I bet some women scheduled a lot of these doctor's appointments. And I bet some doctors put calluses on their dicks from constantly beating off in between appointments. How was work today, dear? <sighs> Exhausting. I had to treat 10 hysterical women. With the last patient who had a particularly stubborn vagina, I experienced the mother of all cramps in my forearm. I had to use both hands, even engage in some rectal stimulation, even pinch a, pinch a few nipples to cure you. You get it. I'd love some aspirin, an ice pack, and a stiff drink if you could, if you could be so helpful. It's, it's crazy. According to the 2002 editorial in the academic journal Spinal Cord, the diagnosis of hysteria gradually petered out. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> petered. Throughout the 20th century, by 1980, hysteria disappeared from the DSM in favor of newer diagnoses like uh, conversion and dissociative disorders. My God, today a doctor would fucking lose their license if they got treating patients by, oh, I'm just helping them come. Uh, you know, they're tense. How am I supposed to relax them? Okay. Okay, now let's talk about some bizarre mental disorders. We've already gotten a little bizarre. Uh, but first, for those of you not listening or watching on YouTube, let's check in with some sweet-ass sponsors offering up some sweet-ass deals. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number 
along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now we're back from our break, or if you're on YouTube, there was no break and just a weird, awkward, slight pause. So many rare and fascinating disorders to cover now, most of which have not been given labels, treated by therapists, not listed in the DSM. Uh, Let's start with Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Alice in Wonderland syndrome is a very rare condition that causes temporary episodes of distorted perception and disorientation. You may suddenly feel larger or smaller than you actually are. So weird. You may also, uh, I feel like I've given Joe Paisley this. I feel like all our talks about him being tiny, it makes him feel smaller than he actually is. He's not actually that small of a dude. But I feel like sometimes I constantly talk about him being so tiny. I wonder how tiny he thinks he is. But uh, you may also find like the room that you're in or the surrounding furniture seems to shift and feel further away or closer than it really is. Uh, These episodes are not the result of a problem with your eyes or a hallucination. They're caused by changes in how your brain perceives the environment you're in and how your body looks. The syndrome can uh, can affect multiple senses, including vision, touch, and hearing. Uh, You may also lose a sense of time. Time may seem to pass faster or slower than you think. Alice in Wonderland syndrome primarily affects children and young adults. Most people grow out of the disordered perceptions as they age, but it is still possible to experience this in adulthood. Uh, It's also known as Todd's syndrome. 
It was first identified in the 1950s by Dr. John Todd. Good old, good old two first names. Uh, first name is a first name and last name is a first name. I love that. You can flip it. Dr. Tan jo Dr. John Todd. This is his uh, partner, Dr. Uh, Todd John. Anyway, British psychiatrist, he noticed that certain patients reported exactly the same feeling of opening out like a telescope. He also noted that the symptoms and recorded anecdotes of the syndrome closely resembled episodes that the character Alice uh, Liddell experienced in Lewis Carroll's novel, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, AWS uh, episodes different for each person. What you experience may vary from episode to episode. Uh, a typical episode will last a few minutes. It can last up to half an hour. During that time, you may experience one or more of the common symptoms, such as migraines, size distortion, including both uh, micropsia, the sensation that your body or objects around you are growing smaller, uh, macropsia, the sensation that your body or objects around you are growing larger, perpetual distortion is another symptom. If you feel that the objects near you are growing larger or that they're closer to you than they really are, you're experiencing polopsia. The opposite of that is telopsia, the sensation that objects are kind of moving farther away from you. Time distortion, you know, the sensation that time is moving faster or slower than it really is. Sound distortion, even typically quiet sounds can suddenly be loud and intrusive. Uh, you can even experience uh, loss of limb control, loss of coordination. A symptom occurs when muscles feel like as, as if they're acting involuntarily. In other words, you may feel as though you're not controlling your own body. The altered sense of reality can affect how you move or walk. You may feel uncoordinated or have difficulty moving about as you normally would. Fucking weird. So strange. Experiencing all of this would obviously fuck your day up a little bit. Hard to frame a house, you know, properly if you feel like you're suddenly a tiny mouse-sized person and that the, uh, you know, wall you're supposed to be working on is suddenly, you know, 90 yards away. Hard to prep for surgery if you think that you're a giant and you can't control your arms. So what causes all of this? Researchers believe unusual electro electrical activity in the brain causes abnormal blood flow to the parts of the brain that process your environment and experience visual perception, right? Messes up your ability to perceive reality around you. One study found that 33% of people who experienced AWS had infections. Both head trauma and migraines were tied to 6% of AWS episodes. More than half of AWS cases have no known cause. So really, nobody knows. Nobody really knows what's going on with this. And there are no treatment options available for this disorder currently. Even stranger disorder, in my opinion, is known as alien hand syndrome. Alien hand syndrome sadly has nothing to do with extraterrestrials. It's not a disorder where you're convinced you have found an alien's hand and you've put it in a box and you've locked it until you can figure out how you can use it like some sort of tracking device to find the spaceship that's going to take you to a planet where you can find King Shit of Fuck Mountain. No. It's a phenomenon in which one hand or sometimes a leg is not under control of the mind. The most prominent symptom of alien hand syndrome is the inability to control the hand as it acts uh, independently. The affected hand may move involuntarily or perform goal-directed tasks and actions. The hand is said to move without cognitive control or awareness. It's as though it's being controlled by someone else or has a mind of its own. The hand may touch your face, button a shirt, pick up an object, sometimes repeatedly or compulsively. The alien hand may also levitate on its own may engage in self-oppositional actions such as closing a drawer that the other hand has just opened or unbuttoning a shirt that you had just buttoned. That would be so annoying. Oh my God. What if, what if you, you know, every time you try to eat some chili with one hand, your other hand just fucking slapped it out of your, you know, the spoon out of your hand. What, what if your one hand that you couldn't control wanted to constantly pick your butt aggressively in public or worse? What if it constantly wanted to pick other people's butts in public and you couldn't stop it? People with alien hand syndrome may even sense that the hand or limb is foreign, doesn't belong to them. Uh, the disorder can be tied to a brain tumor, an aneurysm, a stroke, uh, and neurosurgery. No cure for alien hand syndrome other than, you know, 
cutting off your arm, which is extreme. And how much would it suck if you cut off one arm and then your other lone remaining arm suddenly started acting up on its own? Not even sure that that's possible. Uh, the next disorder, somewhat related to alien hand syndrome, arguably much worse. It's called, whew, it's a tricky one, uh, apotemnophilia. 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 There we go. Whew, big word. Big, high level, top shelf word. Apotemnophilia. Fuck this word. Or body integrity identity disorder, BIID, easier, defined by the uncontrollable desire to amputate one or more healthy limbs or to become paraplegic. It's also sometimes known as amputee identity disorder, AID. Ah, let's call it that, AID. The urge is so strong with these thank the thankfully very rare disorder that many who are afflicted end up mutilating themselves. Yeek. Ah, by shooting into a leg, sawing off a finger or toe, placing the offensive limb in the way of an oncoming train, freezing the limb to death, packing it in ice. One person even injected their knee with liquidized fecal matter in an attempt to kill their leg. And doctors have no idea how to treat it. So you should do your best just to not get it. Maybe you should run a little mantra through your head when you wake up in the morning. Just please do not let me get apatapatapa. Please do not let me get apatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapat
Clinical lycanthropy is defined as a rare psychiatric syndrome that involves a delusion that the affected person thinks they can transform into or is transformed into or has already transformed into an animal. The afflicted may grunt, claw, feel that their body is covered with hair and their nails are elongated. Some people strongly believe that they're in process of uh, metamorphosis into a werewolf. There have been at least 13 case reports of people since 1850 having this. Besides werewolves, one 47-year-old lady claimed that she was a snake. <laughs> Super weird. Uh, I would rather think that I was turned into a werewolf though than want to cut my legs off. I mean, if I had to pick, that one seems better than uh, apatomanophilia. Also better than boanthropy. I mean, if I'm going to turn into an animal, I would, I would rather be a werewolf, not a cow. The next disorder sounds a lot like living inside of a, uh, inside a zombie movie. Oh my, my God. It is, it is crazy how like uh, the brain can work. Kotar delusion, also known as walking corpse syndrome or Kotard syndrome, is a very rare mental disorder in which the affected person holds the delusional belief that they're already dead. They don't exist. Uh, is another, you know, variation of this or that they're, you know, they're putrefying, they're rotting, they've lost their blood or internal organs. It usually occurs with severe depression and some psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. One of the main symptoms of Kotar delusion is nihilism, the belief that life is meaningless, which makes sense, right? Like one doctor talked about in this video I watched, people suffering from Kotar delusion can be very hard to motivate because they think, well, what's the fucking point of getting a job? Um, I'm dead. Why should I get a boyfriend or girlfriend? I'm dead. I'm not gonna show up at school. I'm already dead. Like they actually think that in their heads. Like how frustrating would it be to be the parent of a child with Kotar delusion? It's like, dude, come on. Please pick up your room. It stinks. No, dad, I stink. Because I'm dead and my flesh is rotting. For the millionth time, you're not rotting. Garbage in your room might be rotting. Please pick it up. How about you pick me up, dad? Throw me in the trash. Throw away your dead rotting son. Well, if you're so dead smart, guy, how are you still able to play PS4 all day? Eat all the egos, drink all the milk. I don't know, Dad, I'm not God. I'm just a dead, rotting teen who will clean up his room when he becomes alive again. God, that'd be hard to understand, especially before, you know, people understood modern psychiatry. Uh, researchers not sure what causes Kotar delusion. Kotard uh, usually occurs with other conditions, so treatment options can vary widely. A 2009 review found that electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, was the most commonly used treatment, also a common treatment for severe depression with which Kotar delusion is often linked. ECT involves passing small electric currents to the brain to create small seizures while you're under general anesthesia. Uh, this next one, not necessarily as weird, not as weird, but uh, not any less scary. It's listed in the DSM-5. It's dissociative fugue. Dissociative fugue, also now sometimes known as the Jason Bourne syndrome from all the Matt Damon movies, uh, is when one or it's, it's one or more episodes of amnesia, which an individual cannot recall some or all of his or her past. Either the loss of one's identity or the formation of a new identity may occur with sudden, unexpected, purposeful travel away from home. You can remember how to tie your shoes, drive a car, perform certain skills you learned at work or in school, etc., but you don't know who you are or you become someone else for a bit. Uh, specific symptoms can include sudden, unexpected travel away from home or one's customary place of work with the inability to recall one's past. Confusion about personal identity or assumption of a new identity, partial or complete. The disturbance does not occur exclusively during the course of dissociative identity disorder and is not due to the direct physiological effects of a substance. For example, uh, uh, you know, a drug of abuse, a medication, or a general med medical condition, like a temporal lobe epilepsy. The length of the fugue may range from hours to weeks or months, occasionally longer. During the fugue, the person may appear normal and attract no attention. 
The person may assume a new name, identity, domicile, may engage in complex social interactions. Like they can have a whole other life and then snap out of it. At some point, confusion about their identity and the return of the original identity makes the person aware of amnesia and causes great distress. What the fuck? I mean, can you imagine you're driving to work one morning and then what feels like, you know, a moment later, you're grabbing a meal in a soup kitchen 500 miles from home and find out you've been sleeping on the street for two months and going locally by the name of fucking Whiskey Pete, right? That'd make me so nervous for the rest of my life, you know, if, if that happened to me. Never know, you know, knowing if I might slip into that again. Also, could be a great excuse for having an insane, you know, midlife crisis. Like, baby, it's me. Oh my God. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I can't believe I went missing for, for fucking two weeks again. I somehow ended up back outside of Vegas where, where I got, I ended up getting used as some kind of quality control tester at a high-end brothel. Apparently I was going by the name of Thunderdick and living on cocaine and steak and pussy. Gosh, dang. Can't believe I almost completely drained our savings and got so many STDs. Damn you, dissociative fugue. This condition also pretty rare. The prevalence of dissociative fugue estimated at 0.2%. Treatment sometimes involves hypnosis or drug-facilitated interviews. However, uh, efforts to restore memory, very uh, often unsuccessful. This next disorder, more of a category of disorders than a single illness, uh, factitious disorder. It is in the DSM-5, which states that it, it is a uh, psychiatric disorder in which sufferers intentionally fabricate physical or psychological symptoms in order to assume the role of the patient without any obvious gain. People who suffer from factitious uh, disorder act as if they have a physical or mental illness when in fact they have uh, consciously created the symptoms or faking it. And these people are often willing to undergo sometimes seriously painful or risky tests to get the sympathy and special attention they crave. There's two main types of factitious disorders. Um, there is the factitious disorder. i make sure I fact. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, imposed by oneself that can include the falsifying of psychological or physical signs or symptoms. An example of a psychological factitious disorder of this type is mimicking behavior that is typical of a mental illness such as schizophrenia. The person may appear confused, make absurd statements, report hallucinations. And then there is the fictitious disorder imposed on another. People with this form of the disorder produce or fabricate symptoms of illness in others under their care. Children, elderly adults, disabled persons, pets. Most often occurs in mothers, although it can occur in fathers who intentionally harm their kids in order to receive attention. Eep. There are no reliable statistics regarding the number of people in the U.S. who suffer from fictitious disorder. Uh, ob obtaining accurate, accurate statistics is difficult. It's very hard to diagnose because patients do not typically acknowledge they have it. Uh, the exact cause of a fictitious disorder not known. Researchers believe both biological and psychological factors play a role. Some theories suggest that a history of, an abuse, of abuse or neglect as a child or a history of frequent illness in themselves or family members uh, that requires hospitalization also may be a factor in developing the disorder. Uh, many people who have it also suffer from other disorders, particularly personality or identity disorders. Okay, now for another disorder that is truly bizarre. Mirror touch synesthesia. synesthesia. Mirror touch synesthesia uh, is a rare condition which causes individuals to experience a similar sensation in the same part of the body, such as touch, that another person feels. For example, if someone with this condition were to observe someone touching their cheek, they would feel the same sensation on their own cheek not in the DSM-5, super rare. I'm sure it's terrible to have it, but could be amazing to have this condition and watch porn. I mean, holy shit, better than VR. 
It's like you'd be in the porno. Probably not fun to have this condition and watch MMA or an action movie. Probably not going to spend a lot of time at the boxing gym. Uh, this next disorder sounds like something any one of us could have a touch of. Erotomania. It is in the DSM-5. A person with erotomania has a delusional belief that another person is in love with them despite clear evidence against that. The object of the person's delusions, often a celebrity or a person of higher social status, but not always, an individual may believe that this person is communicating with them and affirming their love using secret messages. It's often combined with another psychiatric illness such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And some people who've had it have done some seriously terrible things because they thought that someone they were in love with told them to do it, uh, like John Hinckley. March 30th, 1981, the then 25-year-old attempted to assassinate U.S. President Ronald Reagan in Washington, D.C. Uh, Reagan did take a ricocheted bullet to the chest. He also, this guy, uh, John, wounded a police officer, Secret Service agent, and the U.S. press secretary. And why did he do this? Do this? Because he thought it would get actress Jodie Foster's attention. He was obsessed with Jodie Foster, been stalking her for months, and he just knew that she would love him if he could just get her attention. Uh, right before the shooting, he wrote to her saying, uh, over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. Uh-huh. This delusion can develop and persist despite clear evidence from the love interest that they have fucking zero interest in you whatsoever. Very weird. I do have an ex this reminds me of. I will not say her name because I'm afraid she might be listening. I don't want to fucking stir up the hornet's nest. <laughs> but we dated a long time ago and we broke up. Then she confronted me several times about other people I was dating and how you know messed up it was that I was dating them even though we were no longer together. I had to tell her over and over that we were done. And it's not like we dated a crazy, crazy long time either. Uh, I had to tell her that I, that I did not like her like that and that we were never, ever going to get back together again, which is not fun to do to somebody. Uh, for a while, she went away. Then two years later, she showed up where I was working at the time, brought me a meal, like just as if we were like living together. Like I hadn't seen her in uh, probably over a year. So weird. Freaked me out. My coworkers thought it was super weird. Freaked them out. Uh, another time, she hung out in front of a different place I was working, just threw down a blanket and danced for a couple of hours, little boombox, knowing that I had to walk right past her when I left for work. Uh, then when I started touring uh, stand-up, she started showing up at stand-up shows uh, and still does to this day. Has wanted to grab a drink or hang out super flirty every time I see her. Fucking creeps me out. Uh, scary to think that someone's brain could prevent them from just you know uh, letting someone else go and moving the fuck on. Man, if anyone ever tells you that you're stalking them, go see a counselor in case they're right. In case despite not feeling crazy, you are in fact acting super duper crazy. You just can't see it. Erotomania can start suddenly and the symptoms are often long-lasting. The object of the affection is typically an older, inaccessible person. Uh, one more strange disorder, and then let's take a little break before bouncing back into some more of them. We'll go into a little timeline. Uh, another delusional disorder, this time revolving around extreme jealousy called the Othello Syndrome. Pathological jealousy, also known as a morbid jealousy. Othello Syndrome, or delusional jealousy, is a psychological disorder in which a person is preoccupied with the thought that their spouse or sexual partner is being unfaithful without having any real proof along with socially unacceptable or abnormal behavior. This would include recurrent accusations of infidelity, searches for evidence, repeated interrogation of the partner, tests of the partner's fidelity, and sometimes a bit of stalking. Uh, the Othello syndrome affects males and less often females. The syndrome may appear by itself or be part of a paranoid schizophrenia, alcoholism, or even cocaine addiction. 
As in Othello, the play by Shakespeare, the syndrome can be highly dangerous and can result in disruption of a marriage, homicide, or suicide. Not fun to have a coked out schizophrenic furious with you because you are for sure cheating on them with someone you may have not even met. Extreme jealousy, paranoia, no thank you. I can deal with some shit in a relationship, but not that. Uh, Okay, now let's take a small break from bizarre disorders. Look at some of the history of how mental illness has been handled over the years. Some of this covered way back in Suck 20, Insane, Insane Asylum Tales. That was three years ago, though. So we'll get back to some more bizarre mental disorders after this episode's relatively short time suck timeline that looks into how we meat sacks have viewed and treated mental illness over the years in the Western world. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. In the late 5th century and early 4th century BCE, the famous Greek physician uh, Hippocrates treated mental disorders as diseases to be understood in terms of disturbed physiology rather than as reflections of displeasure from the gods or evidence of demonic possession as they had been treated in Egyptian, Indian, Greek, and other cultures and writings up until then. And how crazy is that? That this dude knew that mental illness originated in the human body and was not an affliction of the soul And then over 1,500 years later, during the dark ages of medieval Europe, many people, most people had reverted back to primitive thinking and believed once again that mentally ill people were witches and nasty sinners and repentance could cure them. Good reminder that progress can turn into regression if we don't stay on top of that shit. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Later, other uh, Greek medical writers set out treatments for mentally ill people that included quiet, occupation, the use of drugs such as the purgative uh, hellebore, None of those treatments may have worked very well, but at least they were barking up the right trees, right? Family members cared for most people with mental health uh, issues in ancient times. The first European establishment specifically for people with mental illness wouldn't happen for a long, long time after Hippocrates. It wasn't established until 1410 CE in Valencia, Spain. The Hospital of the Innocents, established by a priest, Juan uh, Gilberto Yafri. On Friday, uh, February 24th, 1409, Father Juan was on his way to a cathedral to say mass he heard a bunch of commotion in the street, a bunch, bunch of hubbub. And he saw a man on the ground covering his head with his arms as a gang of young people were taunting and mocking and even hitting him. Father Juan hurried over to the small crowd, demanded they stop hurting one of God's children. At this point in history, many people had reverted, like I said earlier, back to thinking that the mentally ill were just possessed by demons. People thought they were doing society a favor oftentimes by driving the afflicted uh, uh, you know, away or sometimes even killing them. Father Juan rescued the man, brought him to the uh, Mercedarian Monastery, where he was given shelter and had his wounds tended to. And then he wanted to help others. He wanted to build a place to take these people and care for them and keep them safe. He told the people that it would be a very holy thing for the people of Valencia to do, telling his congregation, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Among the congregation at mass were merchants, businessmen, and craftsmen. A short time later, the general council of the city approved an initiative to build a hospital. It was to be located outside the city, close to a place called the Torrent Gate, which soon became known as the Gate of the Insane, not exactly a PC label now, but the word insane didn't always have a negative connotation. And man, Father Juan, man, good priest. Nice reminder, there are some very good priests out there. Sadly, Europe was not full of Father Juans and treatment of the mentally ill did not really improve much after the establishment of the first hospital. Over the next several centuries, Europeans increasingly began to isolate mentally ill people, often housing them with physically handicapped people, vagrants, and delinquents. Those considered insane were increasingly treated inhumanely, often literally chained to the walls of actual dungeons. Shit. That couldn't have helped much. All right, if you're already super depressed, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm strongly guessing 
that being locked in a literal dungeon is not going to turn things around. Right? Hey, hey, Paul, how you, how you doing these days, man? I haven't seen you in a while. Oh, fucking awesome, man. Way less depressed than I used to be. They, uh, they chained me up in a dungeon for five years. And at first, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I didn't like it. Being chained to the wall of a cold dungeon filled with rats and uh, the, the wailing of the dying and the stench of the already dead, it, it really kind of bummed me out further. I felt more depressed, but then I was like, you know, this is, a, this is a good thing. This really gives me a lot of time to think about me. A, a lot of time to think about how I don't want to be chained up in a dungeon anymore. It turned out I, I just needed a perspective adjustment. Like before the dungeon, I hated working for a, a, as a serf for a terrible lord who took nearly all of my money every year in unjust taxes. But now I'm like, you know, eating barely enough stale bread to stay alive and breaking my back working every single day. It's way better than rotting in a dungeon. Uh, by the late 1700s, concern over the treatment of the mentally ill had grown to the point that occasional reforms were instituted. After the French Revolution, French physician Felipe Pinel uh, takes over an insane asylum and forbids the use of chains and shackles. He removes patients from dungeons, provides them. I just fucking can't believe that people just got thrown in dungeons all the time. I keep hearing this word dungeons. It's like, it doesn't seem real. Like, how crazy is that? That they just fucking drag somebody into the basement of like some castle, this dank, gloomy dungeon. And literally just chained him to the wall. Ah, that'll teach him for acting weird. Um, yeah, so he took him. He took him out of the dungeons. This guy Felipe Pinel provided them with sunny rooms, allowed them to exercise on the grounds. Uh, sadly, in many other asylums, mistreatment persisted in the late 1700s. In the 1840s, in America, activist and mental health pioneer Dorothea Dix lobbied for better living conditions for the mentally ill. After witnessing the dangerous and unhealthy conditions in which many patients lived. Over a 40-year period, Dix successfully persuaded the U.S. government to fund the building of 32 state psychiatric hospitals. A new institutional inpatient care model was born in which many patients lived in hospitals and were treated by professional staff. It was considered the most effective way to care for the mentally ill at the time, and it probably was at the time. Uh, institutionalization was welcomed by families and communities who didn't know how to care for mentally ill relatives. Although ins institutionalized care increased patient access to mental health services, uh, the state hospitals soon became very overcrowded, underfunded, understaffed, and the institutional care system became a fucking living nightmare for most people. In the late 19th century, mental illness studied more scientifically as German psychiatrist Emil uh, Kreppelin distinguishes mental disorders. Through subsequent research, or though subsequent research will disprove some of his findings, his fundamental distinction between manic depressive psychosis and schizophrenia holds to this day. Now that we moved a long way from the Dark Ages, diagnosis of, uh, you know, the devil's inside this man. The devil made him do it. So that's, you know, it's good. Some progress. Also in the late 19th century, asylum life, it gets even worse in the U.S. The expectation in the U.S. that hospitals for the mentally ill and humane treatment will cure the sick does not prove true. State mental hospi hospitals have become dangerously overcrowded now. Custodial care supersedes humane treatment. New York World reporter Nellie Bly poses as a mentally ill person to become an inmate at an asylum. Reports from inside result in more funding to improve conditions. Man, Nellie Bly, very brave meat sack. Working under an, uh, uh, working under an assumed name in 1887, the then 23-year-old took a room in a boarding house, set out to prove herself insane. She wandered the halls and nearby streets, refused to sleep, ranted and yelled incoherently, even practiced looking crazed in a mirror. Within days, the boarding house owner summoned the police. She claimed to be a Cuban immigrant suffering from amnesia, a perplexed judge sent her to Bellevue Hospital in New York City where hospital inmates were forced to eat spoiled food, live in squalid conditions. She was diagnosed there with dementia and other psychological illnesses. 
and then sent by ferry to Blackwell's Island in the East River. Originally built to hold 1,000 patients, Blackwell was cramming more than 1,600 people into the asylum when Bly arrived in the fall of 1887. So 1,600 people in a building meant for 1,000. That's fucking crazy. Just 16 doctors on staff. Patients were forced to take ice cold baths and remain in wet clothes for hours, leading to frequent illnesses. They were forced to sit on uh, benches without speaking or moving for stints lasting 12 hours or more. Some patients were tethered together with ropes, forced to pull uh, carts around like mules. Food and sanitary conditions were horrific. Rotten meat, moldy, stale bread, frequently contaminated water were being dished out. Those who complained or resisted were beaten, sometimes savagely. And Bly even spoke of the threat of sexual violence by vicious, tyrannical staffers, basically like, you know, shut up or we'll rape you. Also, many of the inmates weren't even mentally ill. They were just poor and they were sent there by families who couldn't afford to to care for them or by the courts who didn't know what to do with them. Uh, Reasons for admission into the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Virginia from 1864 to 1889 included, and this just speaks to like, you know, people going to these insane asylums who shouldn't even be there uh, because they didn't even have any mental health issue. You could send somebody to an asylum for laziness, egotism, disappointed love, female disease, mental excitement, cold, snuff, greediness, imaginary female trouble, gathering in the head, exposure and quackery, jealousy, religion, asthma, masturbation, and bad habits. How scary was that reality? Where your parents or your spouse could meet with the head of an institution, tell them that you were lazy and been jerking off too much, and they would lock you up. Imagine how many people would be institutionalized now if they locked up everybody who had bad habits and was lazy and jerked off. I think, I think 90% of teenagers would be institutionalized. <laughs> many years ago, I'd have been one of them. In the late 19th century, many people abused the U.S. mental health care system just to get rid of people they didn't want to be around, right? If they're having uh, you know, trouble with a spouse, trouble with a kid, fucking throw them in the institution. Say that they were, uh, I don't know, too jealous and they you know, finger blast themselves too, too many times. It's crazy. 1908, uh, Clifford Beers published his autobiography, A Mind That Found Itself, detailing his degrading, dehumanizing experience in a Connecticut mental institution, calling for the reform of mental health in America. Within a year, he will spearhead the founding of the National Committee for Mental Hygiene, an education and advocacy group. This organization will evolve into the National Mental Health Association, the nation's largest umbrella organization for aspects of mental health and mental illness. We're getting some improvement uh, in the 30s. Take a little step back. Uh, Drugs, electroconvulsive therapy, and surgery are used to treat people with schizophrenia, others with persistent mental illnesses, and then some people have uh, part of their brain removed surgically in an operation called a lobotomy. Old Dr. Ice Pick McBrain Stabber. Lobotomies were performed widely over the next two decades to treat schizophrenia, uh, depression, anxiety, and obsessions. (laughs) And surprise, surprise, uh, didn't always work too well. You could start off with some anxiety and then end up being fucking catatonic. After some quote-unquote doctor shoved an ice pick, like a literal ice pick sometimes, into your brain, you know, just going right th- past your eye and just wiggling it around in your noodle. Man, fuck the past. No thank you on so many levels. Even, even as a white dude, which means I would have it the easiest of any demographic going back into the past. Zero interest. Fuck that noise. Uh, 1938, doctors run electric current through the brain, the beginning of electroshock therapy to induce convulsions to treat schizophrenia. Doesn't work. It doesn't work that well uh, with schizophrenia. It actually does help with depression and other mental ailments. So there is some, and I've actually talked to people who they still use that, uh, you know, in a limited way today. And it does help some people with like severe depression and a few other things. July 3rd, 1946, U.S. President Harry Truman passes the National Mental Health Act, creates the National Institute of Mental Health. 
and allocates government funds towards research into the causes and treatments for mental illness. As a result of this law, the NIMH will be formally established on April 15th, 1949. Also in 1949, Australian psychiatrist Jeff or J.F.J. Cade introduces the use of lithium to treat psychosis. Prior to this, drugs such as bromides and barbiturates have been used to quiet or sedate patients, but they were ineffective in treating the basic symptoms of psychosis. Lithium will gain wide use in the mid-60s to treat those with manic depression, now known as bipolar disorder, and lithium still commonly used to treat people with bipolar disorder today. I know some people who use lithium. In the 1950s, a series of successful antipsychotic drugs introduced that do not cure psychosis but control its symptoms. The first uh, of the antipsychotics, the major class of drug used to treat psychosis, is discovered in France in 1952, Thorazine. Studies show that 70% of patients with schizophrenia clearly improve on antipsychotic drugs like Thorazine. So progress, hail Nimrod. Uh, the numbers of hospitalized mentally ill people in Europe and America peak in the 1950s. In England and Wales, there were 7,000 patients in 1850, 120,000 in 1930, nearly 150,000 in 1954. Uh, in the U.S., the number peaked at 560,000 in 1955. Uh, by the mid-50s, a push for deinstitutionalization and outpatient treatment begins in many countries, uh, facilitated by the development of a variety of antipsychotic drugs. Deinstitutionalization efforts have by this time reflected a largely international movement to reform the asylum-based mental health care system, right? Move towards community-oriented care based on the belief that psychiatric patients will have a higher quality of life if treated in their communities rather than in large, undifferentiated, and isolated mental hospitals. Although large inpatient psychiatric hospitals are still a fixture in certain countries, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, in the 50s, the deinstitutionalization movement has begun dramatically changing the nature of modern psychiatric care. In the 60s, many seriously mentally ill people are removed from institutions. In the U.S., they're directed towards local mental health homes and facilities. The number of institutionalized mentally ill people in the U.S. will drop from a peak of, like I said, 560,000 to just over 130,000 in 1980, you know, despite the overall population growing quite a bit. And, and some of that, God, I fucking hate this word. I can say it, but it's just such a motherfucker. Some of this deinstitutionalization is possible because of antipsychotic drugs, which allow many psychotic patients to live more successfully and independently, which is awesome. However, some of the decline in numbers is because, you know, people who used to be put in institutions are now just on the street, which is not awesome. 1963, the closure of state psychiatric hospitals in the U.S. is codified by the Community Mental Health Centers Act of 63. You know, no, no more locking up your wife because she masturbates too much. Also in 63, Congress passes the Mental Retardation Facilities and Community Health Centers Construction Act. I didn't pick the name. Provides federal funding for the development of community-based mental health services. And uh, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, founded in 1979, uh, in the 1980s, an estimated one-third of all homeless people are considered seriously mentally ill, the vast majority of them suffering from schizophrenia. In 86, advocacy groups band together to form the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression, trying to find, you know, you know uh, better ways to deal with this population. In the 90s, a new generation of antipsychotic drugs helps further. Uh, 1992, a survey of American jails reports that 7.2% of inmates in are overtly and seriously mentally ill, meaning that 100,000 seriously mental Ill mentally ill people have been incarcerated. Over a quarter of them held without charges, often awaiting a bed in a psychiatric hospital. So that's not good. By 2000, the number of state psychiatric hospital beds per 100,000 people was 22, down from 339 in 1955. And that's a problem in a lot of cities is there's not enough beds, not enough state beds 
to put people suffering from severe mental illness and they just end up on the street. Ah, which is, uh, you know, not good. Uh, Deinstitutionalization de- de- is a highly polarizing issue. Many studies have reported positive outcomes from community-based health, mental health programs, right? Improvements in, in a lot of behavior, friendships, patient satisfaction. Other studies report loneliness, poverty, bad living conditions, poor physical health, you know, more harm to the community because of people being out on the street. You know, uh, critics of de- deinstitutionalization point that, or point out that many patients who've been removed from inpatient psychiatric hospitals to nursing or residential homes, you know, those places aren't always staffed properly. They don't get the proper medications. And uh, yeah, for lack of a better word, it is insane to me how many severely mentally ill people are living on the street in like Los Angeles. I was just there, you know, recently again, and it's so much worse than it even was three years ago. Parts of Venice Beach, downtown LA, parts of Santa Monica feel like just free range psychiatric hospitals where so many people, like so many people are clearly severely mentally ill and just wandering around. Sad for them and sad for everyone else living there. You know, I addressed this earlier when I was talking about that Starbucks on Santa Monica Monday. I had to stop going to that Starbucks. And this was a couple of years ago because it was just literally too crazy. Like every time I would be in there for more than half an hour, somebody would be fucking screaming, threatening people, walking in, saying weird shit, storming back out, grabbing other people's coffees. Uh, one dude just sat next to me, like one of the last times I was there and just maybe like six inches from my face and just stared, like just stared at me, like a, like a very intense stare, just like leaning forward. And I'm like, ah, okay, all right, this is, this is enough. So, you know, it's, it's tough. You don't want people to be locked up in institutions, but if you, you know, try to do more community-based things, then sometimes it's harder to keep track of them because there isn't the funding for all of that. You know, you got to fund that stuff really properly to make it work. And if it doesn't work, then just people are out fucking wandering around the streets and that's not good for anybody. So I don't know. Many experts hope that by improving community-based programs, expanding inpatient care to fulfill the needs of severely mentally ill patients, the U.S. will achieve, you know, uh, improved treatment outcomes, increased access to mental health care, and better quality of life for the mentally ill. Uh, I hope it happens. A lot of people working very hard to help solve what seems like sometimes an unsolvable problem. A lot of people pouring their heart and soul and expertise into making sure one of the world's most vulnerable populations gets the best care they can. It's nice to think about that people are working very hard to fix this. You know, we we cover so many pieces of shit here on the suck. It's easy to forget that there's a lot of truly wonderful people out there. So who knows? Maybe someday we will figure out how to make this world great for everybody, including people with severe mental illness. I hope that happens. A lot of people are working on it. And uh, and that is all for this week's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. All right, now after that little bit of history, a little bit of positivity as well, let's get back to the irreverent humor that makes Time Suck an absolute no-go for so many why so serious types. Uh, let's get let's get back to more bizarre mental disorders. Here we go. A jumping Frenchman of Maine is an extremely rare disorder characterized by an unusually extreme startle reaction. A sudden noise or fright elicits an uncontrollable jump. Individuals with this condition can exhibit sudden movements in all parts of the body. The exact cause of jumping Frenchman of Maine, what a weird name, is unknown, believed to be a neuropsychiatric disorder. One theory is that the disorder occurs because, because of an extreme condition response to a particular situation influenced by cultural factors. Uh, jumping Frenchman of Maine was first identified during the late 19th century in Maine in the Canadian province of Quebec among an isolated population of lumberjacks of French-Canadian descent. And if I would have lived around those dudes back then, I would have been startling the shit out of them all the time. So fun. Come on, the bigger reaction, the, the more incentive to mess with them. 
Uh, my great grandma Estelle would, would pop up like if you startled her, she would kind of like she wouldn't like jump necessarily, but just like like an extreme startle reaction, eyes bulge. She'd make a high pitch, woo, just kind of like when she was startled. And even though she was in her late 80s, and looking back, I could have literally killed her by doing this. I would hide around corners and then just pop out and just scare the fucking shit out of her. And I loved it. And now I also startle very easily and, and you know, have a big reaction. And I feel like I'm going to pass out when someone really scares me. And my son, Kyler, loves it and constantly fucks with me. And I got to say, it's less fun. Uh, definitely more fun to be the startler rather than the startlee. Not much is known about this disorder, but some researchers believe that jumping Frenchman to Maine may be a somatic neurological disorder. Somatic disorder caused by a gene mutation that occurs after fertilization is not inherited from the parents or passed on to children. Uh, the next one, one uh, a very rare eating disorder called simply uh, pica. Pica is an eating disorder that involves eating items not typically thought of as food that do not contain any nutritional value, uh, such as hair, dirt, or paint chips. PICA is in the DSM-5. The criteria for diagnosis includes the persistent eating of non-nutritive substances for a period of at least one, one month. And the eating of non-nutritive substances has to be inappropriate to the developmental level of the individual. Uh, you can probably tell this is not a physically uh, beneficial disorder. Dirt and paint chips, most definitely not in the food pyramid. If you pick up a health magazine and read about the dietary habits of an elite level athlete, you're never going to read something like, for lunch, Dwayne The Rock Johnson mixes two packets of Metrix Extreme Size Up Chocolate Protein mixed with ice, a cup of 1% milk, one banana, two tablespoons of peanut butter, a half cup of frozen blueberries, and a half teaspoon of interior oil-based paint flakes, a full teaspoon of lawn dirt, and three pinches of ginger pubic hair. Unclear how many people are affected by pica. Uh, it can be associated with intellectual disability, various other obscure disorders, the first, uh, you know, treatment for pica usually involves uh, testing for mineral and, uh, you know, the first line of treatment involves testing for mineral or nutrient deficiencies and correcting those. In many cases, correcting eating behaviors uh, disappears when the, once the deficiencies are corrected. So that's pretty sad. Sometimes people don't have the right mineral and their body's like, fuck, just give me some dirt. I'll get my iron one way or another. Uh, I think I know someone who has this next disorder. Uh, oniamania. Jesus Christ. Uh, oniamania. Also known as compulsive buying disorder, CBD, not the awesome marijuana-based uh, uh, CBD, a behavioral disorder characterized by an obsession with spending money and an insatiable urge to buy things, typically resulting in adverse consequences. Uh, it's, it's an extreme form of being a shopaholic. And while the disorder is often overlooked, it can leave people in financial chaos. Uh, compulsive shoppers experience a series of uncomfortable emotions, including heightened anxiety and extreme depression. Spending temporarily relieves these symptoms and then makes them feel worse when, when the shoppers feel the shame and guilt afterwards. Luckily, there's a, there's a lot of therapies available for this. And the person I know who I will not name, and I'm not making this up, once bought several computers and then hid them like a bunch of laptops <laughs> and then hid them under a guest room bed so his wife wouldn't find them. Like never even used them. Didn't even get to use them. Was so afraid of the wife finding them, but still bought them. Just bought a bunch of fucking computers on credit cards and then hid them. And then hid so much other shit, bought a giant expensive couch, hid that in his daughter and son-in-law's garage for months. So his wife wouldn't know he bought a huge couch. <laughs> Even weirder, bought an ATV. Even though he had severe back problems, it wouldn't allow him to actually ride it. Like he knew buying it, he would never even be able to ride it. it literally no use for it. And bought like a $15,000 ATV thing, hid that. And where did all that insane shopping lead? Uh, two maxed out credit cards and a divorce. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not sure who this disorder is worse for, the person who has it or the, or the spouse who gets their financial future motherfucked uh, by, by a rare mental disorder that they may not be able to even understand or believe in. Uh, the next disorder can be best explained as self-cannibalism. Uh, autophagia occurs when one is compelled to inflict pain upon oneself by biting and or devouring parts of one's own body. Sometimes seen with schizophrenia, doesn't appear in the DSM-5. Autophagia can be classified under the DSM's impulse control disorders, not elsewhere classified. Uh, impulse control disorders involve failing to resist an impulse, drive, or temptation to perform an act that is harmful to the person or to others. The majority of individuals affected by this disorder will often feel a sense of tension or arousal before committing the act, then experience pleasure, gratification, or relief at the time of the act. Once the act has been completed, they may feel regret, self-reproach, or guilt. I feel like I may have some sort of impulse control disorder. Like my whole life, I've always really, really wanted to, wanted to say the most fucked up thing possible in any given situation. And sometimes I do. And it does feel really good to get it out, even when people are horrified. Uh, I've actually kind of made a living out of having poor impulse control in some ways. Uh, but thank God my impulse isn't to fucking eat myself. God. Maybe old serial killer, king of the deviants, Albert Fish, maybe he had, he had some kind of impulse control disorder. Had a, had a hell of a time controlling his age to, to eat steaming hot peanut, peanut butter. Chovies. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Uh, three more. Next up, Stendhal syndrome. And, and kind of four more because we're going to do an edit of the internet that is about one. Uh, Stendhal syndrome or Florence syndrome is a psychosomatic condition involving rapid heartbeat, fainting, confusion, even hallucinations allegedly occurring when individuals become exposed to objects or phenomena they consider just to be really beautiful. Uh, Stendhal syndrome, named after one of the earliest recorded cases of this when the French novelist and critic Stendhal made himself sick on art in Florence, Italy in 1817. It's similar to Paris syndrome, where tourists will visit Paris for the first time and experience anxiety, dizziness, Hallucina hallucinations, delusions, uh, and more after they realize that Paris is drastically different from the idealized city they thought it would be. <laughs> it's like an extreme, weird, location-specific disappointment. Another extreme form of culture shock is Jerusalem syndrome, where uh, you know tourists suffer from obsessive religious thoughts and delusions in the holy city of Jerusalem. The human brain is so strange in some ways, man, so fragile in some ways. Next up, the bizarrely named exploding head syndrome. <laughs> exploding head syndrome is where you hear a loud noise, like a really loud noise right before you fall asleep or wake up and nobody else hears it. It can sound like fireworks, an actual bomb exploding, like a loud car crash. Some people have described it as like a gunshot, cymbals crashing, a lightning strike. Sometimes you hear just a sound. Other times you may have a flash of light or muscle twitch occur at the same time. It can come on sporadically. You can hear several sounds one night and then none for a long time and then have it come back. Researchers don't know much about it. Some scientists think it could be minor seizures or sudden shifts in parts of the middle ear or stress or anxiety. And uh, experts don't know how to treat it. So uh, don't get it. Just try not to get it. <laughs> and then the last one I'm going to look at today before the edits of the internet, such a sign of the times. This is a, a real disorder in DSM-5 called internet gaming disorder. A condition that needs more research, you know, before it's clearly defined, but it is in the DSM. Online games, super popular. At least one person plays video games in two-thirds of American households, according to the Entertainment Software Association. Uh, roughly 160 million American adults play internet-based games, one recent study estimates. And these games can be super addictive. And, and I do believe they really can be addictive, like, like true addiction. I've only felt like an addict around video games. I, I've, have, I've had to give away multiple gaming systems over the course of my life because I didn't have the willpower to stop playing them if they were near me. 
I, I never played World of Warcraft because when I was a few years out of college, right before I deleted it off my computer, I was playing uh, the predecessor, Warcraft 3, that's not supposed to be even nearly as addictive. And I got so into it, I stopped eating regular meals, stopped showering on a regular basis. I would pretend to be asleep until my ex-wife was asleep. Then I would sneak out of bed and play all fucking night long and then just be exhausted, but then keep playing the next day. Uh, the last day I played, I, I didn't even get dressed. I just sat naked in front of the computer, didn't shower, didn't brush my teeth. It slaughtered the fuck out of some orcs over and over again. I was just an unstoppable night elf killing machine in the game. In real life, I was a greasy, sad boy who almost told my ex when she walked in the door after getting home from work and caught me only wearing pants with no underwear and not even having my teeth brushed or hair combed. Almost told her I've been jerking off all day because that seemed less shameful than the truth. Firmly believe that games can be addictive. Uh, but it is a question still being debated amongst researchers and health professionals. Gaming addiction um, is, it's, let's see, the DSM-5 notes that gaming must cause significant impairment or distress in several aspects of a person's life. This proposed condition is limited to gaming, does not include problems with general use of the internet, online gambling, or use of social media or smartphones. <laughs> ah, man. Under the, uh, uh, so in some countries, including South Korea and China, video gaming is, has already been recognized as a disorder. Treatment programs have been established. Uh, researchers have recently found that 0.3 to 1% of the U.S. general population might qualify for a potential diagnosis of internet gaming disorder. That's over a million people. The author suggests that it is, it is an important distinction between passionate engagement, someone enthusiastic and focused on gaming, and pathology, someone with an illness and an addiction. When the person is distressed with his or her, his or her gaming, uh, you know that's when it becomes an illness. Okay, so that so that concludes our investigation into bizarre mental disorders. I mean, we could go on and on and on. I feel like it can get, get a little bit repetitive, but I do want to talk about one last condition. It's, it's another one not in the DSM. Uh, it has not really been looked at as a mental illness yet. I think it will be someday. Definitely fits with this suck. It's called misophonia, and I for sure have it. Misophonia, or hatred or dislike of sound, is characterized by selective sensitivity to specific sounds accompanied by emotional distress, even anger, as well as behavioral, behavioral responses such as avoidance. Similar to OCD, misophonia presents itself differently in each individual. Uh, for a person who suffers with misophonia, he or she uh, can revolve a lot of their life around avoiding personal triggers. And I know that word gets overused, and I myself have made fun of that word, but it is the best word to use here. A trigger is a sound or sight that causes a misophonic response. It, it may be a sound someone makes when chewing, slight, slight pop of the lips when speaking, a little smacking person whistling. Uh, for a person with misophonia, this can trigger an involuntary reaction of irritation. If the trigger continues, if they keep fucking smacking, the emotions quickly turn into extreme anger, rage, hatred, or disgust. And, and I love that a misophonia site website says that these emotions are jerked out of the person and trying to stay calm when being triggered is futile. Yeah, so true. You don't want to be angry, but you are fucking enraged. You know, it's crazy, but the feeling stays. Uh, misophonia triggers uh, generally start with a familiar person and a familiar sound, a sound regularly heard in the afflicted's life. Uh, a survey was conducted of individuals with misophonia in 2013, in which two-thirds said their worst trigger was an eating, chewing sound. 10% were breathing sounds. The remaining 25% had a variety of worst triggers, including bass through walls, uh-huh, dog barking, shut the fuck up, coughing, take a fucking cough drop, clicking sounds, no thank you, uh, whistling uh, parents talk. Parents talking. Uh, sibilance, the sound produced when uh, you know saying words such as "sun" or "chip," and uh, someone typing on a keyboard. And I hate all those sounds. Maybe other than parents talking, that one doesn't bother me. But I hate everything else. 
Misophonyinstitute.org offers a simple test to determine if you have misophonia or not. Just two questions. Starts with two questions. Here's the first one. Are there sounds that you cannot tolerate even if the sound is soft? Yes. Do not eat potato chips around me in a quiet room, you crunchy fuck. Also, cannot be around Reverend Dr. Joe when he drinks water because he doesn't, he doesn't just drink it, you guys. He gulps it down like a savage, like he's been in the fucking desert for weeks. Just thinking about it disgusts me. I love him, but it disgusts me. Cannot be around Queen of the Suck when she eats salads. Why the fuck does she have to scrape the bottom of her bowl with every goddamn bite? You quietly poke the lettuce with the prongs of the fork. That's what it's built for. And then you can gently chew it in your mouth quietly like a decent person instead of a Polish monster. The next question, number two, do you instantly have a response to the sound that starts with irritation or disgust and it almost immediately becomes anger? Yeah, see above response to question number one. Then the site says, if you answer yes to both of those questions, you have misophonia. Check. How severe your misophonia is depends on your answers to the next survey. So let's see how bad I have it. Let's see how bad maybe some of you have it. Let's, let's, let's follow along here. Let's play along with this. The site, if you can. The site says the misophonia assessment questionnaire was developed by Dr. Marsha Johnson. Click on the following link, fill it out, add up your points from all your questions. The maximum score is 63. The higher your score, the more severe your misophonia. Okay, so here we go. Misophonia severity, uh, a score of zero to 11, subclinical, meaning you don't need treatment. And then 12 to 24 is mild, 25 to 37 is moderate, 38 to 50 severe, 51 to 63 extreme. So the rating scale is zero. You know, this doesn't bother you at all. One, a uh, little bit of the time. Two, a good deal of the time. Three, almost all the time. Okay, now question number one. My sound, or statement number one. My sound issues currently make me unhappy. Hmm? One, little, little of the time. One. My sound issues currently create problems for me. One or two, but I'll say one. One, okay. My sound issues have recently made me angry. Two, if not three, but I'll go conservative too. I feel that no one understands my problems with certain sounds. One. My sound issues do not seem to have a known cause. Uh, no, zero. I know what cause they have. It's fucking loud fucking chewers and breathers, and drinkers. Uh, my sound, number six, my sound issues currently make me feel helpless. Uh, zero. I don't feel helpless. Uh, number seven, my sound issues currently interfere with my social life. Yeah. I was, oh, oh one. A little of the time. I won't go to certain restaurants and things because it's just, you know, it's too quiet. I hear the smacking too much. Number eight, my sound issues currently make me feel isolated. One. Uh, my sound issues have recently created problems for me in groups. Uh, yeah, too. I avoid some stuff. Uh, my sound issues negatively affect my work life. Joe, one. <laughs> Not his fault, by the way. I know this is all me. Uh, my sound issues currently make me feel frustrated. Two, it is frustrating to get so angry about this stuff. Uh, my sound issues currently impact my life negatively. Uh, one. Yeah, some negativity. My sound issues have recently made me feel guilty. Yes. Just today, I feel guilty he's talking about Joe. Uh, my sound issues are classified as crazy. Two, I feel that no one can help me with my sound issues. Three, uh, my sound issues currently make me feel hopeless. No, I mean, I don't feel like anybody can help, but I don't, hopeless, because it's like, whatever. I don't, maybe, maybe hopeless, I should put it more. I don't know. I feel the sound issues will only get worse with time. Yeah, two. My sound issues currently impact my family relationships. Two, uh, my sound issues have recently affected my ability to be with other people. Two. My sound issues have not been recognized as legitimate. Two, it's real, mom. Uh, and then the last, I'm worried that my whole life will be affected by sound issues. Three, adding up all my responses, I got a score of 31, right in the middle of moderate. So not, not bad. I was, I was worried I'd be in the severe category. And I got to say, feels good to know that others have the same thing. Uh, uh, you know, enough for a doctor to design a test. Numerous studies are being done on it. Uh, it seems to be an audio processing disorder. 
my brain amplifies certain background noises to unbearable levels. Uh, one bit of recent research indicates that for people with misophonia, certain background noises can become four times as loud as they are for others. That makes so much sense to me. Sometimes I literally cannot focus on what Lindsay is saying when we're out together because all I can hear is the motherfucker 30 feet away who just got released from prison, I guess, and didn't get to eat for the past three weeks. And that's how they have to eat their fucking food, like a savage piece of shit. It makes me angry even to think about it. It's so ridiculous. Uh, I do think it's good to have a sense of humor about stuff like this, like any condition or disorder you have. You know, I, I can laugh at, like, I do realize this is all laughable. And laughing at, at it takes the serious out of it. Uh, uh, a while back, somebody showed me a misophonia support group on Facebook. And it, and it when I saw the post, it was the hardest I'd laughed and I didn't even know how long. And it also made me feel so good to know that I identified with so many of the crazy posts. So let's have some laughs at my expense. Let's laugh at some mental illness. Let's laugh at how fucking crazy I am when it comes to sound with a special misophonia-centric idiots of the internet where I am this week's wackadoodle. Idiots of the internet. I, I could have made the entire episode post from this group, but I know that not everyone identifies. <laughs> so I try not to make it too much. The admin of the group I chose for this uh, called simply Misophonia Support Group stopped posting on Facebook back in 2016. So the group is closed, but it doesn't matter because the posts and comments underneath, are they're timeless. February 21st, 2016, the admin posted, I am not emotionally, <laughs> I am not emotionally equipped to deal with the sound of a person chewing loudly. I, like I could not identify with that more. And then here are some of the comments. They go all over the place, and it's just great. Kathy K posts, is anyone bothered by certain ways people cough or clear their throats? Sometimes I just want to scream. I liked that comment, Kathy. Yep, clicked it. Uh, I also hate it when somebody sneezes more than twice. It's a weird, I've had it for so long. Like, <laughs> if you sneeze more than twice, I'm immediately angry. Because I'm like, fucking, just get it out. What are you doing? Sneeze, you're, sne what are you trying to hold it in for? Sneeze it out and then knock it off. Shut up, you attention whore. <laughs> Lori C comments, I have to have a heater or fan on at work and sleep with a fan on. Yep, liked it. Gotta have some kind of noise. First thing I do when I come into the suck dungeon is turn on Spotify every day so I don't have to hear anybody breathe or smack or drink water. <laughs> so I don't have to hear, I feel like a son of a bitch, but so I don't have to hear when Joe P puts his headphones on and he starts to breathe through his nose louder. And then I have to leave the room so I don't want to hate him. And I gotta say, this feels good to get it off my chest. Tess O comments, for our two-year wedding anniversary, my husband got me Bose noise cancellation headphones. They have been an incredible help. We'll go out to dinner <laughs> and I'll stay present as long as possible. And then at some point I'll say, I need to disappear now. And he'll say, go ahead, baby. And I'll put on my headphones and everything silenced. I love that they're doing that at dinner. Living with misophonia is hell, but I'm grateful every day for my compassionate husband. Oh, I liked it, Tess. If my... <laughs> This makes me feel a little bit less crazy. I don't know. If my noise cancellation headphones, I have to use, I have Bose ones too. And if I'm out at a coffee shop and the batteries go dead, I just leave. Like I can't, I can't stay there and work. I have to go home. I have to go to my hotel, come to the office. Because if I don't, within five minutes, I will get so angry that I'll, I'll start fantasizing about stuff like locking the building, just locking up all the chatty fucks inside that coffee shop and then burning the building to, to the ground. Uh, Scotty D posts, they could be the nicest person in the world. <laughs> but an obnoxious chew will separate me fast as I, uh, as I can. I feel an immense guilt over, <laughs> over feeling the anger towards some people when they chew and smack. I'm nearly gagging from them chewing. I want to film them, then show them what they look and sound like to see if they're still impressed with themselves. 
Oh, God damn it. I like it. I wish I could like it a hundred times. I literally can't be friends with somebody if they chew with their mouth open. No way. No fucking way. Oh man. Like a first date, like dating. If it was a loud chewer done, I don't, I don't care if they're the best person in the entire world. Get the fuck away from me. You uncivilized bastard. Uh, BA post. It drives me absolutely insane. My mother-in-law is sitting right next to me eating and I'm ready to stab myself in the neck. Just to stop the sound. Like it, B.A., uh, except I would change stab myself in the neck to stabbing her in the neck. You're not, you're not the problem. Come on, she is. Come on. She's forcing her nasty chew sounds on you like a dirty monster. She, deser- she deserves it, right? Tell her to eat outside like a, like a lip-smacking dog. That's how she's going to act. Uh, Jennifer C. posts, I had to tell my husband to put his computer away tonight so I didn't have to physically harm, harm him. I think my words were stop typing or I swear I will kill you. Or something close to that. I can chuckle now, but it was horrible. In my head, it sounded like a thousand insect legs tapping on my brain. Only worse than that. Like it. God, yes. I've had that exact sensation where somebody's typing on a computer near me. Uh, most, I don't know why. Mostly Lindsay. When Lindsay t- types near me, nope. Can't. I don't like it. I don't like to listen to her typing. Uh, another post from the admin is, hearing people chew makes me want to punch them in the face. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's a fantasy I've had like a thousand times. And then uh, and then a very nice and peaceful looking young woman. This just made it that much funnier to me. Olivia M. Her profile pic is like, like she's like pretty, like, you know, walking through a, a forest with a horse. Looks so serene and peaceful. And she posts, punch them in the face? Well, it's still very far from the horrors that cross my mind when it happens. A slaughter. Yes, Olivia, I get it. The violence is so over the top. The rage is so intense. I have to get up and walk away from people eating sometimes because I'm, I'm afraid I'm just going to snap, like especially if I'm tired. Finally, Linda M. posts, have to say I burst into tears when I found about misophonia. 60 years of thinking something was wrong with me, intolerance, rudeness. At least now I can understand, take a breath and move on. Yes. You're not alone, Linda M. Neither am I. Neither are you, Meat Sack. Whatever the fuck you have, even the rare stuff, someone else has it. So try and find some of those people. It feels good. It's like it feels good for many of you to be part of this community, to know you're not the only person who tries to do right in the world, but also has a dark sense of humor and is kind of fucked up and loves to learn. Uh, And I think that's enough for today's rage-filled, but also kind of a feel-good idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay. All right, now let's dispel some myths about mental illness before we get out of here. I am really loving this suck, by the way. Good pick, Space Lizards. I would have never thought of this topic. Uh, it does feel good to talk about all this. It really does. Uh, one myth I think we've dispelled today is that mental health problems are rare. No. As we noted already, they're very common. Upward to 43.8 million American adults experience a mental illness in any given year. One in 10 young people will go through a period of major depression. That's not rare. Sadly, neither is the suicide this often leads to. Need to know you're not alone thinking suicidal thoughts. Suicide ranks 10th amongst the leading causes of death in the U.S. Top 10. It accounts for the loss of more than 47,000 American lives each year, which is more than the number of lives lost to homicide. Over 800,000 people worldwide commit suicide each year. That's, that's close to a million. It's the second leading cause of death in the entire world for people between the ages of 15 and 29. Studies show that young people that commit suicide, uh, 90% of them had an underlying mental condition. So get help. Put the clowns back in the car, which is a phrase I made up today, by the way. If you're like, what is that from? It just popped in my crazy head and, and I like it. Uh, about 75% of people who take their own lives are male, uh, while transgender adults are nearly 12 times more likely to attempt suicide than the general population. So got to remove that stigma. 
Uh, more myths to debunk. Another myth some people believe is that children don't experience mental health problems. You know, it's just kids being kids. No. The fact is even very young kids may show early warning signs of mental health concerns. These mental health problems are often clinically diagnosable. They can be the product of the interaction of biological, psychological, and social factors. Half of all mental health disorders show their first signs before a person turns 14 years old. Three quarters of mental health disorders begin before the age of 24. Uh, unfortunately, less than 20% of children and adolescents with diagnosable mental health problems receive the treatment they need. Early mental health support can help a child before problems interfere with other developmental needs. Another pervasive myth is that people diagnosed with mental health illnesses are violent. The truth is the vast majority of people with mental health problems are no more likely to be violent than anyone else. Most people with mental health, mental illness are not violent and only 3% to 5% of violent acts can be attributed to individuals living with a serious mental illness. In fact, people with severe mental illnesses are over 10 times more likely to be the victims of violent crime uh, more than the general population. Uh, the next myth goes something like people with a mental health need uh, you know, can't tolerate the stress of holding down a job. Uh, it is true that in the U.S. alone, almost $200 billion of lost earnings is reported due to serious mental illness uh, while the global economy loses about a trillion per year in productivity due to depression and anxiety. But people with mental health problems just as productive as other employees. Employers who hire people with mental Ill health issues report good attendance, punctuality, as well as motivation, good work, and job tenure on par with other employees. Uh, another myth is that uh, personality weakness or character flaws cause mental health problems. Basically, people with mental health problems can snap out of it if they try hard enough. And, and that one is not a myth. That, that actually is true. I mean, come on, you little wimp turkey. Concentrate harder. I'm making your schizophrenia go away. Just wish away some bipolar. Get to wishing, motherfucker. Uh, no, of course, that's a myth. Mental health problems have nothing to do with being lazy or weak. Many people need to, uh, help to get better. Many factors contribute to mental health problems, including biological factors such as genes, physical illness, injury, brain chemistry, uh, life experiences such as trauma or a history of abuse, family history of mental health problems. Uh, another myth is that there's no help for people with mental health problems. You know, once a friend or family member develops mental complications, he or she will never recover. That's not true. Studies show that people with mental health problems get better and many recover completely with treatment. Lots of studies show this. Uh, it improves all the time. Another myth is that you can't do anything for a person with a mental health problem. I think we know this is wrong. The truth is that friends and loved ones can make a huge difference. Only 44% of adults with diagnosable mental health problems and less than 20% of kids and adolescents receive needed treatment. Friends and family can be an important influence to help someone get the treatment they need. So reach out, let them get that, you know, let them know it's okay, that no one thinks you're crazy, you know, uh, and support them. Getting treatment, not feeling bad about treatment uh, is so important. Uh, I've been slow to come around to this, even though I studied psychology in, uh, in, in college. I also came from a, a you know family where no one wants to deal with anything. And, and it's silly. If you have a physical ailment and a doctor can make you feel better, why wouldn't you go? Why needlessly suffer? I, I've done that a lot myself and I've been an idiot. There's no reason to needlessly suffer mentally or physically, right? Uh, therapy can be a game changer for anyone battling a mental illness, whether mild or severe. Uh, everyone can benefit from mental health professional talking to them from you know time to time. Research has shown therapy works. Its positive effects can endure for years. Uh, here's some good info on how beneficial therapy can be. According to a study from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, even a few sessions with a therapist can lower the risk of suicide among at-risk patients. A 2014 study found that people suffering from major depression are more likely to improve with a combination of therapy and medication as opposed to just medication. Uh, as described by 2010 research, the benefits of therapy continue to grow even after treatment is ended. 
And on the other hand, the lack of treatment for mental health disorders can be one of the most, uh, can be, you know, very harmful. One of the most significant crises of our time, perhaps. You know, if we were to treat mental health issues that affect millions of Americans, we would expect to see a decrease in physical ailments, an increase in longevity, perhaps surprisingly a stronger economy. The problem is that many of us don't understand the consequences of not treating mental illness. Here's some quick facts on what can happen when you don't treat it. You know, risk of suicide, you know, an, an increase. The majority of suicide deaths can be attributed to mental illness. Uh, the 10th leading cause of death for all age groups, second for young adults, suicide accounts for about 113 deaths a day. That could be significantly reduced if more treatment was around or if more people sought treatment. Stress, mental illness can cause serious health problems such as stroke, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure. People with depression have a 40% higher risk of developing cardiovascular and metabo metabolic diseases than the general population. Uh, people with serious mental illness are nearly twice as likely to develop these conditions. Untreat untreated mental illness decreases adult lifespans in the U.S. People living with mental illness die an average of 25 years earlier, in large part due to chronic medical conditions caused by not treating mental illness. Stats like these, you know, they're striking, they're thought-provoking, they highlight the urgency in our country and in many other countries to make mental health care more of a priority. Not something that should be ignored, so don't ignore it. You, you get a little therapy. You know, you don't have to be some neurotic crybaby just because you're getting therapy. You know, I, I foolishly believe that myself from time to time. Uh, for those of you struggling with mental illness, just knowledge is power. Know that the struggle really is real. Understand that your challenges are real. Nothing, you know, to be ashamed of. That effective treatments towards wellness are available. They are out there. Uh, you know, that's the first step towards making life more manageable is just uh, getting that help. So get it. So hail Nimrod. Uh, I hope you're doing okay with your, with your noodle. Let's hit those top five takeaways right now. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, lots of people experience, uh, you know, mental illness. You might have a mental disorder. I might, and so might 25% of the globe at any given time. Number two, mental health, a vast topic. We went over a lot today, but we just barely scratched the surface. Hopefully we went over enough to make it clear that in every aspect of the mental health world, including suicide prevention, science has progressed our understanding of mental health. And that's a great thing. No more getting locked in the dungeon or taking an appointment with Dr. Ice Pick McBrainstabber. Number three, try and chill a little more quietly if you could. It's, un it's unbearable. Number four, more effort could be put into the destigmatization of mental illness and we could seriously save a lot of lives. So much of the reason people don't get help is because of the unwarranted stigma attached to issues of the mind. It's no different than seeing a doctor for a physical ailment. And number five, new info. Let's look at one more aspect of mental disorders and that is the incredible genius of savants. I have always been fascinated by savants. Uh, savant syndrome is a rare but extraordinary condition in which persons with serious mental disabilities, including autistic disorder, have some kind of island of genius, which stands in marketed, uh, market, my God, marked incongruous contrast to their overall handicap. Uh, as many as one in 10 persons with autistic disorder have such remarkable abilities in varying degrees. Uh, although savant, savant syndrome occurs in other developmental disabilities or in other types of central nervous system injuries or diseases as well. Uh, whatever the particular savant skill always linked to massive memory power. Savants have a lot of RAM. The special memory power may aid in rapid calculation, artistic ability, map making, or musical ability. Uh, a famous example is Rain Man, right? Even though you've probably never heard of Kim Peek, chances are you've heard of the movie Rain Man. Kim was the inspiration for the character played by Dustin Hoffman in that movie. Kim Peek was born with severe brain damage. His childhood doctor told Kim's father to put him in an institution, forget about him, 
Yeah, it was, it was a different time. It was a worse time. Uh, Kim's severe developmental disabilities, according to the doctor, would not ever let him walk, let alone learn. Kim's father thankfully dis- disregarded the doctor's advice. Until he died in December of 2009, Kim struggled with ordinary motor skills, did have difficulty walking, was severely disabled, could not button his shirt, tested far below average on a general IQ test. However, what Kim could do was fucking astounding. He read some 12,000 books and remembered everything about them. Kim Pewter, as he was lovingly known to many, could unbelievably read two pages at once. His left eye reading the left page. I don't even understand how this is possible. Left eye reading the left page, right eye reading the right page. Took him about three seconds just to read through two pages, just like, like a scan. And he, could, and he would remember everything that he had read on them. He could recall facts and trivia from 15 different subject areas, from history to geography to sports. People could tell him a date. And Kim could quickly tell you what day of the week that date in history was. He remembered every song he'd ever heard, even one with lyrics that are pretty ironic since we're talking about great memory. I keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. I keep forgetting how you made that so clear. I keep forgetting. But Kim picked it not. He remembered every motherfucking thing. I remembered to McDonald's you again. Triple M, he lives on. And that is all for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Bizarre mental health disorders has been sucked. Hail Nimrod and chew with your fucking mouth closed. You, you get it. You get it now. Uh, thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Vela Camp, Reverend Dr. Paisley, the Bit Elixir app design crew, Logan and Kate at Spicy Club. Check out the new store. Script keeper, Zach Flannery. Uh, check out the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. If you want to, you know, meet a new cult member. If you, if you want to make some more friends, get more social in 2020. We now have over 15,000 members in there. Pretty, pretty soon it's going to be a small city's worth of suckers. I'm pumped. Right now it's a pretty healthy sized virtual cult compound. Uh, you know, pretty healthy sized town of a virtual cult compound. Uh, you can also bounce over to the Time Suck Discord channel. Almost 5,000 diehard suckers in there. Uh, next week, we're going over declassified military documents. Another another off the beaten path kind of topic. Uh, the script keeper's already going to jump on it. I'll be starting on it tomorrow. What are we going to talk about? Or what are we going to be talking about? Honestly, still figuring that out. Maybe we'll talk about how in late 2012, the U.S. Air Force declassified a trove of documents, including records of a secret program to build a flying saucer type aircraft designed to shoot down Soviet bombers. This ambitious program called Project 1794 was initiated in the 50s and a team of engineers tasked with building a disc-shaped vehicle capable of traveling at supersonic speeds. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about Operation Northwoods. The tense relationship between the U.S. and Cuba during the Cold War led to the CIA hatching a slew of bizarre schemes aimed at taking down Castro. While the goal of most, uh, uh, most of these covert operations, such as Operation Mongoose, was to assassinate Castro himself, other plans aimed to incite an all-out war between the U.S. and Cuba. In 1998, the NSA, non-governmental organization that publishes information made available through the Freedom of Information Act, posted declassified documents related to Operation Northwoods. The scheme, dreamed up in 1962 by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, involved committing acts of violence against U.S. and Cuban civilians on U.S. soil, then blaming those acts on the Cuban government. These acts included faking terrorist attacks in U.S. cities, hijacking of planes, sinking of boats. 
Uh, and then all of that would be used to justify a war against Cuba. The Kennedy administration recognized uh, the folly of Operation Northwoods and rejected it. But what if they hadn't? Would we even know about that operation today? Going to be some real fun conspiracy-ish stuff to dig into. And now let's dig into the community with today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Kicking things off with a cool new message update and an old suck. The 9-11 suck from September of 17. Awesome vet, meat sack, Timothy Adams wrote, Dan motherfucking suck master Cummins, you delightful son of Nimrod. I've been a huge fan of yours since the first time I ever heard of your stand-up. Pretty sure it was on Pandora Radio and while I was training for my deployment to Afghanistan back in 2011. Every time I set a tray down in a chow hall, I giggled to myself thinking, here come the spoons, motherfucker. <laughs> I've been sort of skipping around time suck here and there, trying to catch up over the last five or six months since I first started. I went back to my unplayed episodes today, found one I knew was bound to trigger me extra hard. The 9-11 suck. After having the worst experiences of my life over in Afghanistan as a direct result of that day and having that deployment kind of ruin my personal life, typical deployed soldier with a cheating wife at home, I knew that this particular episode was going to bring back a lot of emotions I intended to keep bottled up. So glad that I today gave in and listened. The conspiracy nut jobs I have to listen to still to this day infuriate me, and I cannot wait to have them all take a listen before letting them assault my meat sack processing unit with their lack of facts. The part of the episode that really made me want to write in was the ending. The quick stories you gave about the heroes who gave their lives knowingly to save others in the towers as they burned. Those brave men and women are the reason I enlisted in the U.S. Army at barely 18 years old. I sacrificed my life as I knew back home before even shipping out because if those heroes could run back into burning towers, they had to assume we're going to collapse soon. The least I could do is deal with the divorce to go and honor their memories by fighting the evil sons of bitches that made that day into the horrific monster of a memory that it is. Sorry for the super long email, but if you do ever get to reading it, thank you for bringing actual tears to my eyes over a small handful of people whose names I didn't even know before you spoke them. You, sir, are an amazing human being. I wanted to say thank you so much for what you do. The entire Time Suck team, family, and community. Uh, you're not just an informed or uh, informed or an entertainer. You're an amazing meat sack, motivating not just me, but my fellow battle buddies, even my teenage sons, to learn and grow and understand the world better, hopefully make it a better place for more meat sacks in the future. Hail motherfucking Nimrod. Hail his voice embodied in Dan fucking Cummins. Sincerely, Timothy Adams. Yeah, SGT, Timothy Adams. Uh, I believe that's Sergeant, but I always get nervous if I, if I don't positively know it. I want to fuck it up and be insulting. But you are an amazing human being, uh, Timothy. You're the one who went overseas, not me. So if I'm amazing, you're a word that means more than amazing. Uh, balls, uh, Marvelous? Uh, Metalist fuck? I'm not sure. But seriously, thank you so much for your service. Uh, so glad you've enjoyed all this and uh, just uh, honored that I've been along with you to some uh, important places for some of your brave adventures in some small way. So hail Nimrod to you. Uh, and uh, it sounds like you're raising some good kids, man. It's awesome. Uh, now an Oklahoma Girl Scout murders update from an Oklahoma sucker named Jason. Jason writes, Danny boy, I just listened to the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders episode. And anytime you come close to mentioning Oklahoma and or Oklahoma law enforcement, I can't keep my mouth shut. You made mention the manhunt for Gene Hart was the largest manhunt in Oklahoma history. I don't know if you meant, excuse me, at that time or of all time. Yeah, sorry, Jason. That was a uh, poor phrasing. I did mean up until that time. I'm not, I'm not sure if there's been larger manhunts done since. Poor, poor phrasing on my part. And then Jason writes, you most likely don't remember, but I'm also a police officer in Oklahoma City. Not being from Oklahoma, you probably don't remember the manhunt from Michael Vance. Yeah, and I did not remember this. It was some of the most intense weeks I've ever had as a law enforcement officer. 
I knew my chances of an encounter with Michael Vance were slim to none with the area I normally patrol being close to the state capital and much more of an urban setting. It was obvious Michael Vance was staying in more rural areas and staying out of the populated areas of the Oklahoma City metro, but I do have some rural areas that butted up to where he was known to have committed some of his crimes, along with two main thoroughfares, I-35, I-40. It was incredibly unnerving knowing any traffic stop could be him, and I may be immediately met with rifle fire. I do not remember any criminal being searched for quite to the magnitude of him in my short career. You may have seen the ending of this manhunt without realizing it, though. Trooper Costanza engaged him in a pursuit that ended in a gunfight between troopers and Michael. You will probably recognize the footage after watching it. Uh, I, I watched that. I had not seen it before. Wow, man, they took him out. Intense firefight at the end there. And then Jason writes, another manhunt uh, that was just as involved and used as many, if not, uh, that used as many, if not more resources was the manhunt for Timothy McVeigh. The only reason this may not be listed as the largest is because it ended too quickly due to pure chance when McVeigh was pulled over for driving a vehicle without a license plate. McVeigh was arrested for unlawfully carrying a concealed weapon. The manhunt for him would have been much larger if he had been given a chance to go into hiding before being pulled over in Perry, Oklahoma. I know it sounds like a broken record requesting an episode of Time Suck over the Oklahoma City bombing, but it is absolutely a fascinating story with some amazing police work done to track him down and then realizing he was already in custody in Perry, Oklahoma. If you do happen to do a time suck over the Oklahoma City bombing, I'd love to help you out with research any way I can. My wife and I can't resist saying, research, like you do in your stand-up where you say uh, you're naked and learning away in the basement. I will do any research fully closed or fully clothed. Uh, I purchased tickets for your stand-up when you come to Oklahoma City the day I heard about it. If you're in town while I'm working, I'd love to have you come for a ride-along uh, if I'm not training a rookie. I also strongly urge you to go to the bombing memorial while you're in town. Make sure to bring tissues with you because you'll be crying seeing all the empty chairs on the lawn. It's absolutely beautiful memoriam to the victims. Can't wait to see in Oklahoma City. Hope you're enjoying the Thumpers, Jason, Oklahoma City. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, yes, we have the Thumpers hanging up in the office and more of your woodwork. Luckily, no one has been thumped. Those things are heavy. That would fuck somebody up. Uh, looking forward to seeing you in Oklahoma City. Excited for those shows. And also, yes, the Oklahoma City bombing. I did put that on the list for a Time Suck episode for 2020. Please send any research you have to Zach at timesuckpodcast.com to get it going. And that's Z-A-Q. Mm -hmm. Zach with a Q. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why he makes terrible choices like that. His parents, maybe they didn't like him as much when he was born. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, now another suicide prevention update coming in from an awesome meat sack, Ryan Fossum. Who writes, Dear Master Sucker, Prophet and Nimrod, Praiser Bojangles, Hailer Lucifina, and Butcherer <laughs> of Michael McDonald's songs. That's, that's fair. This is about the Time Sucker update from the guy thinking about suicide who is asking for advice. After years of having thoughts of suicide, I think I have advice that would work for most people. Live for somebody else. I've had suicidal thoughts for years, still do. But when I do think about suicide, I also think about how much my family loves me. Think about what suicide would do to your loved ones. Because once you kill yourself, your pain may be over, but you are just passing that pain on to all the people who care about you. I hope if you read this on the podcast, my advice helps someone, Ryan Fossum. And thanks for putting in rhymes with awesome. Yes, thank you, uh, Ryan. That's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. I mean, who knows who needed to hear that this week? Uh, you could have quite literally just saved a life. Uh, now here's a funny little Cummins Law update. I love these so much. From Caitlin T. And I love the name Caitlin, by the way. That's a great name. I love that I act in my head like people pick their names. Like you get a choice in the matter. Uh, I mean, I guess you could change it. Whatever. Anyway, Caitlin writes, Dear Master of Sucking, I recently found out about Time Suck by listening to your comedy in Pandora and have been hooked since and my fiance found scared to death and we love uh, seeing you and Lindsay every week. Oh, thank you. I've been making my way through episodes, often listen while I'm at the gym. <laughs> 
Yesterday, I was listening to the Pancho Villa episode and went to connect my phone to my Bluetooth headphones. I kept pressing play and couldn't hear anything. Finally, I hear the ne guy next to me say, what the fuck? And I realized I had connected to his headphones. Well, <laughs> <laughs> while you were contemplating how many human ears could fit into a potato sack. Thought you would like to hear about the reaction you give non-time suckers. Keep on sucking. Oh, thank you, Caitlin. Oh yeah. I can only imagine. I bet he was thinking, what the fuck? With no context? That's some creepy shit to hear. I mean, it's creepy with context. Next level creepy without it. Thank you for sharing that. Definitely made me laugh. Uh, and now I want to end on uh, getting a nice new perspective on the death penalty, which obviously I've had strong opinions about. Uh, sent in by super sucker Ryan Brewster. Uh, love how you're making me rethink some stuff here, Ryan. Ryan writes, hello. So I absolutely agree with you on the emotional desire to end the life of disgusting, violent criminals. However, I wanted to add the logistical reasons I have for being against the death penalty. Firstly, our broken prison system should be limited to only these piles of shit and more focus on rehabilitation for nonviolent offenders, drug offenses, et cetera. With prison reform, the cost of incarcerating those who... Uh, truly want out of society forever would still be greatly reduced by reducing the amount of inmates that still have hope to be a value to society. But that is a whole other can of worms. The main reason is more strategic. Prison is a hot, excuse me, prison is a hotbed of bragging and informal details of crime spreading through inmates. It is very often that violent offenders will eventually reveal information to another inmate, be willing to give more details of crimes for additional perks, etc. For the sake of closure for victims, I feel that having three scumbags incarcerated together for life is not only a worse punishment, but a possible future opportunity for more evidence or details or straight-up confessions because they talk. The chance of an innocent person being convicted is also a concern, but having a direct line of new information on cold cases or unsolved crimes should be considered. Longtime fan of your stand-up and podcast, as well as your outlook on life, morality, logic, critical thinking, so I wanted to chime in with my two cents. Apologize for any typos or grammatical errors. I'm composing this on my phone without my glasses, but with some whiskey instead. Long live the suck, Ryan Brewster. Well, you did a good job. You did a good job there on the phone with some whiskey and no glasses. Uh, I'll be honest. I did not think for a second about information, closing cold cases, uh, that aspect of this. So, okay. All right. Emotionally, still want to kill these worthless fucks, but I, I, I see what you're saying. In the name of solving more cases... Right, bringing about more closure to families, you know, uh, victims. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe life in prison is better. I, I just hate saying that. I just hate them getting to have moments of joy going forward. But that is probably true. Uh, you may be changing my mind. As I feel like I have to think about it more. Uh, but thanks for making me think. And thanks, thank all of you for being a part of this awesome community. Long live the suck. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's all for today. More content coming this week. A new Scared to Death drops tomorrow night. Uh, the Secret Suck here on Thursday. Have a great week. See a therapist. If suddenly you think you're a cow or you decide you need to eat a, a paint chip sandwich, uh, please don't eat uh, potato chips around me or sneeze uh, more than twice in a row like a fucking just, you know, just dreg of society and, and mostly just, uh, you know, keep on sucking. Yay! Yay! Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. <laughs> 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.